my moose merkin and blow it out your bleach tape. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to appear on your show. Thank and you. And don't forget to remind everyone about Diabetic Series. Next show will be taking place not next week. I think it's going to be when, David, on the 15th Well, let, 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 let's go. Thank you. We're going to find out. Let's go now. Let's but we, find out. Thank you, Martha Previtt. Thank you. Thank you. Let's now go to Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom, and we're then going to wash, back to Washington, D.C., to talk to Mark Savasco, who is Congressman Ted Lou's chief of staff. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Very quickly, when are we doing the community billboard? Um, anytime before I eat, I'm good with. I see the schedules for okay. so yeah, no, okay, great. And when are we doing? We we met yesterday. We're postponing Diabetic Fury. We're going to come up with a date sometime in May, right? Yep. Uh, Martha and I discussed it, and we're we're going to shoot for the fifteenth. Okay, fifteenth should be good. How was your weekend? It was great. How did yours go? Good. Uh, have you, you you spoke to Jim Earl? Yeah, actually, I saw him. Uh, he was standing around a pepperoni factory ripping up newspapers. Oh, good. And uh, how's John Ross? John Ross, he was a. See, I, I saw him. He was standing in a cold sauna, kicking a stool for a half an hour. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger, in the newsroom, learning to be Don Rickles Jr. If you haven't seen Thursday's show yet, or Friday's show, Mike Rowe, Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, was teaching us how to talk like Don Rickles, and there's a formula, and Dan has learned it. Well, this is a special treat. We are going to Washington, D.C., back to Washington, D.C., to the other side of the Capitol, where Mark Savasco is standing by. He is Congressman Ted Luz, Chief of Staff. Please welcome Mark Savasco. It's, it's good to see you. Good, good to see you. Yeah, I like the new format here. It's great. Well, you haven't done the show since we started doing it on Zoom, and That's right. yeah, and usually was over the phone. And you're coming to us. It looks like from the, the congressman's office. No, this is my basement. <laughs> you're coming to us from uh, undisclosed location. Yeah, undisclosed location. You haven't been on the show because. Congressman Ted Lieu sits on the Judiciary Committee, and you've been busy impeaching the ex-president of the United States and putting. Yeah, we've had, a, we've had a busy. It's been a busy year uh, or so, but um, uh, yeah, I think the last time we were, on, I was on, we were debating whether or not uh, we should go through with the first impeachment of Donald Trump, and you did such a good job making the case. We actually did it twice. So, uh, <laughs> I could be very, very convincing. Let, let's, yeah. uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you about January 6, 2021. Sure. Uh, sure. A somber day in Washington. And where were you? 
I was with the congressman, um, you know, because of uh, pro, uh, COVID protocols, I was the only one, our, our staff is all working pretty much remotely, but, um, you know, never never a good idea to let a member of Congress wander around the halls by themselves. They usually have at least one, <laughs> they get in trouble. So we have one not, to not there. Ted Lou from the great <laughs> state of California. He's one of the few that could yeah. navigate himself quite right. easily, but... Um, so I had been stabbing him that week. That was the week they were getting sworn into the new Congress. And um, uh, and so they had to be there in person. They couldn't. Ted had been voting by proxy uh, prior to that, trying to keep in line with the uh, attending physician's guidance of max, you know, max telework and, and, and doing as much as we can remotely. Um, but we had to be in that week. And so we were in our, our office building, which is in the, the Cannon House office building. Um, and... Uh, I guess it was a little bit after it was a little bit after the proceedings had started for the certification, um, maybe about two twenty-five, two thirty. Um, that uh, an email went around, and then we heard a lot of shouting in the um, in the hallways. And, and a Capitol police officer knocked on our door and told us we had to evacuate the building. And this was because of the the bomb threat at the RNC, which is across the street, sort of catty corner across the street from the Cannon Building. Um, they, we they, they had was it a threat or did they find uh, an explosive device? Actually, you're, you're right. Yeah, so more than a threat, they had they had found an actual pipe bomb uh, in, in front of the RNC. They didn't know if there were others, and just given the proximity of our building, they they uh, out of an abundance of, ca- of caution evacuated our building. Right. And so we were kind of refugees in the Longworth building, <laughs> Cannon refugees in the Longworth building. Um, just sort of standing in the hallway for uh, for several hours. Um, so the, uh, and because of COVID, of course, you're trying not to be near other people, and you know everybody had masks on, but the, the hallways were getting kind of crowded. So uh, Congressman and I actually climbed up a, a couple flights of stairs and found an empty hallway to kind of camp out in, and um, we're watching the proceedings. I was watching on my phone, and he was sort of just tracking on Twitter. And that's when we first started to see some of the accounts of um, of the violence that was taking place uh, outside in the hallway. And um, I was also in touch with several of my colleagues, who um, some of whom were, were in the Capitol building itself, um, uh, one of them being Jamie Raskin's chief of staff. Um, and um, she, I don't know if you've read anything about her sort of harrowing story that day with, with some of Jamie's family, but... Um, they were trapped in there for quite a while, and the only thing I can describe it... He had just buried his son, and his daughter thought they were going to die that day. That, that, that's right. Yep. Yeah, he talked about it a little bit at the trial, too. Um, and his chief of staff was there, basically, with these, these young people, you know, trying to, trying to keep them safe. And, um, uh, you know, so it, the only thing I can describe it, the only parallel that sort of comes to mind is are these stories sometimes you hear from, like, mass shooting events and the texts that people send to their family members, you know, like, I love you, mom. I, you know, it, don't, you don't know if you're going to kind of make it out. And, um, and, and Julie, uh, Jamie's chief of staff was, was texting a group of us, um, of her fellow, her colleagues there just being like, I can, you know, we hear them in the hallway. There's smoke coming under the door. There's banging. You know, she's taking photographs from outside the window and sharing them with us. And so there's this very, um, you know, it's this feeling of sort of, uh, powerlessness and, and hopelessness. And, um, uh, that was the hardest part for me. I um, I don't know that I ever really was afraid for myself. Um, although Ted and I, so Ted and I are in the hallway there, and um, uh, at one point a bunch of Capitol Police officers go running by, and they stopped by us and said, um, you guys should get into a room. 
and shut the door. You shouldn't be out. They weren't way. saying like, get a room, you two. Not like no, that. it wasn't quite that. Okay. It wasn't that tone. Uh, so we knew what they meant. They said, yeah. You guys should get inside somewhere where you can lock the door. And they told Ted, take your member pin off so that nobody right. can identify you as a member of Congress. And that's when I started to think, oh, well, this, this could be bad. This is pretty serious, I guess, if they're telling members to do that. And so I was on the text chain actually with um, with David Cicilline's chief of staff, who's another friend. From Rhode Island. Uh, from Rhode Island. Uh, Mr. Cicilline was, ended up being the, the sponsor of the, um, along with Ted, uh, the sponsor of the article of impeachment. And this is sort of the story of that, I guess. But uh, So I, I called up Peter, his, his chief of staff, and said, can we um, – can we come over to your office because we're, we're can't go back to our office and they're telling us not to stay in the hallways and I'd rather not, you know, sort of hide in the bathroom um, for, for however long. And so we made our way over to Rayburn, which is one more building over. And at the time, you know, there's all the COVID considerations. So it really was a big sacrifice on their end to say, yeah, we'll let two other people come in, you know, our relatively small office here. Uh, so we, we definitely appreciate, uh, appreciate them doing that and opening up their, their office. And, um, so we were there with, with Ted and I and, and, and Mr. Cicilline and his staff, and I remember for the first time we could sort of watch it live on TV, and um, we're kind of watching it, watching it all unfold. And again, there's this feeling of sort of powerlessness, and um, you're kind of you're kind of watching this place that you you work and you revere, and um, you know, kind of get desecrated the way it was. And um, I don't remember who the first one was to say it, but 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 somebody said. You know, we, we should impeach this guy um, over this. I think some one of the networks had played some of his speech from earlier in the day, the former president's speech, and um, you know there was a lot of anger at, at that, especially seeing what we were seeing, seeing Capitol police officers beaten, um, you know, seeing them breaking windows and, and waving the Confederate flag through the rotunda, um, and uh, so we started drafting it <laughs> while it was going on, while while we were still in lockdown, while while while. Terrorists were still inside the Capitol building. Um, Mr. Cicilline and Mr. Liu and, and their respective staffs uh, started drafting um, uh, drafting the article along with help from the Judiciary Committee uh, councils. We had reached out to them and um, and we were kicking around drafts late into the night. And we went, you know, we were there till four o'clock in the morning. Um, and then you had to go back and then certify the election. That's right. Yeah. And then they had they had that the final vote was a little bit after midnight, I think, and then or. or Gosh, I don't remember the timelines now. Yeah, a little, a little after midnight, maybe it was closer to one. And um, I think we ended up leaving around two thirty, three o'clock. I think I got home about four. And um, so we, by the end of that night, we had a, a pretty solid draft. And um, Mr. Cicilline's staff and and our staff were were really the ones that were um, were were picking up the phone and, and and calling around to these other offices. And Ted and David were, were texting their colleagues, and um, we were getting co-sponsors. And, and the goal was to get as many co-sponsors as we could to kind of force the issue here. Um, and that night, and it's not a judgment on anybody, but that night we were sort of told to calm down a little bit, um, you know, by, by sort of the powers that be. They sort of, well, let's let's see how this, you know, let's see how this unfolds. And um, by the next morning it was clear that um, most members of Congress uh, were most Democrats in Congress at least were, were in favor of, of impeachment, and that that's what made our, you know, our, our article, which was very simple. It was about the incitement of the insurrection. You know, it was in our minds a very clear cut case, and um, uh, that ended up being the vehicle that you know that we used and was voted on a week later in the House, and uh, you know, then we had the trial a couple weeks after that. So, um, and, and Congressman Lou was a House manager of the impeachment. That's right. Yeah, Mr. Cicilline and Mr. Liu ended up being managers, uh, and Mr. Raskin was the lead manager. Um, 
and uh, and we, we had obviously there's a handful of other members as well that uh, uh, that helped us prosecute the case in the Senate. Okay, uh, Kevin McCarthy, he's the House Minority Leader, was on the news this past weekend and talking about the January 6th insurrection, giving you know he's been all over the map as to what he thought happened. Yeah. Who is Congressman Jamie Buelter? I believe he's from Washington. And why didn't you call him as a witness? So um, it's a, a she, Jamie Herrera Butler, um, the congresswoman from, from Washington State. Um, so... Um, That's a hard question. I'm asking you a difficult you know, question. It's a, good, it's a good question. It takes a little, It might take a little bit of back... Uh, well, there there was a call. Um, there there yeah. was a call that was made to the Republican leader McCarthy in the middle of the insurrection. I'm going to ask you about the word insurrection in a second, but let's sure. uh, we'll call it an insurrection. And according to Butler, who was listening in on the call or heard McCarthy's version, he was screaming to Donald Trump to call off his attack dogs, and Trump was, according to McCarthy and Butler at the time, was aware of what was going on, and he said something to the effect, apparently these people are more concerned about the election results than you are. Mm -hmm. So the, the criticism of the, the House managers, the impeachment trial, was they didn't call Congresswoman Butler or McCarthy. They didn't call witnesses. Why didn't they? I mean, I, I've been. Howie Klein suggested something. He has a theory as to why they didn't call the witnesses. Well, it, it's a it's a fair it's absolutely a fair question. Um, and there's still you know look I, I, without. Um, you know, getting too much into, you know, the, the internal deliberations, I can tell you it was an open question. It's not like it was the kind of thing that everybody just agreed on right away. There, there was some strenuous debate about it. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, so specific to Mr. Well, they didn't call any witnesses, is that correct? That's correct. So there were, there were no witnesses called. Specifically to Mr. Herrera Butler, um, you had a situation where the defense stipulated her account, um, her account of a phone call. Uh, that she, her account of the minority leader's account of a phone call that he had, right? Um, and they allowed us to enter that into into the evidence. Um, with, with regard to opening it up and having, you know, uh, you know, whatever dozens of other witnesses potentially calling the majority leader, other people, um, I, it, it's probably worth reminding folks that we are still the House of Representatives is still in court today, fighting to get the House counsel, Don McGahn, to come and testify from the first impeachment trial. Um, so for, for an unwilling witness, for somebody who doesn't want to come and, and testify, um, we don't have a lot of speedy mechanisms. Uh, and it's honestly one of the things that the House Judiciary Committee is looking into, uh, ways to, to perhaps give precedent and, and give priority to um, – uh, to to instances where there's presidential you know malfeasance or misbehavior and and something may may uh, impact it. Wasn't this going to go before the Supreme Court? Weren't they going to rule as to it, it, what, it, it, how, it, just it, how much oversight 
the House Judiciary Committee could have over the Oval Office? Have they resolved that in the Supreme Court yet? No, we're, we're still. I mean, we'll, we're still. We're still. As I'm saying, we're still fighting over. Do the um, Democrats want it resolved, or is, do they? Would they rather operate with norms? Because are the Democrats afraid of too much congressional oversight that would end up crippling a Democratic president? I don't know that Democrats are afraid of too much congressional oversight. Uh, certainly, from our perspective in the House, we believe appropriate over <laughs> oversight is important and um, something that we, um, you know, I, I mean, so from my perspective, I don't really care if the Democratic administration feels like Congress would, you know, they, they would be hampered by Congress. I think it's, it's it, we've already ceded far too much ground, in my view, as the legislative branch, um, you know, o- over the executive. So I, 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 I don't know that that's the particular fear. I think it's more about um, uh, a president who, who pushed the limits of what what was had been sort of acceptable or appropriate or standard behavior, and a system that frankly isn't designed to move very quickly and and be very adaptable, trying to catch up. And I'm I'm not so sure we've done an excellent job of that. Um, so you you have this is fascinating. And thank yeah. you for coming on. I hope you have time to keep coming back because you have been before the impeachments. You were giving us civics classes and how to be better citizens. So this is very valuable. In terms of congressional oversight, in the past, it was negotiable, it seems, that you would, a committee chairman would call over to the White House, is this reasonable? Then you would, you would negotiate behind closed doors, and it still has to go before the Supreme Court on a case-by-case basis, right? There's no blanket statement as to how much oversight Congress has over the executive branch. It'll still, even if the Supreme Court rules on McGahn or any of these other uh, subpoenas, it'll still be a case-by-case basis, right? Yeah, I, I mean, look, certainly there would be, you know, anything the Supreme Court decides uh, there, it would, would set some form of precedent. So, you know, you can, I mean, that's sort of the way the law kind of works. You, you, you could draw reasonable conclusions based on, um, based on prior decisions, but as you point out, yeah, you, I mean, everything could still be challenged case by case, and and and. Uh, so and, when when Bernie Sanders, yeah, when he asks Jeff Bezos to testify before, uh, is it the Budget Committee or Finance? He's Finance, right, Bernie Sanders? Yeah. He wants Jeff Bezos to testify before the Finance Committee, and Bezos says no. What power? does Bernie have to bring Bezos in? Well, he could, he could issue a subpoena, and Mr. Bezos could challenge that subpoena. Who enforces that? I, I love the civics now. So who enforces a subpoena? I mean, ultimately, it could be a, it could be a and I'm not, I mean, you say you love the lesson. I, I, it's not my area of expertise by any stretch of the imagination, but um, but it could it would be it could be a criminal referral to to DOJ. I mean, they, they would ultimately, which by the way is a complicated. It's a little simpler when it's a private citizen who's refusing right. to testify before Congress, because yeah, then you can take these actions. It's very different than when the person that we're trying to subpoena is also the person that's right. in charge, right. right? Who runs the executive branch? That's that's why we're saying these. Okay, all right. So I'm. It's the 1950s, and the House Un-American Activities Committee. I think they dissolved it in the 
early 70s. And I think we should bring it back. That's a whole other conversation. I think we need to go after the fascists instead of the, the communists in our government, the fascists. But anyway, David Feldman gets subpoenaed by HUAC, and I say, no, I'm not coming. Like Jeff Bezos. I, I'm busy. I'm giving secrets. I'm giving atomic joke writing secrets to uh, my handler in the Soviet Union. I don't have time. They could force me, and that, and that is what they did, right? They would come with a subpoena. No. Do they, do they pay for my transportation? I live in New York. I want a hotel. I want a per diem. I want a... <laughs> that's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think so. I don't think you get your, I mean, think about it. What if you got subpoenaed just in a, you know, in a criminal trial? I mean, it, it, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you could have to come and testify. But I, I, uh, I, I'm David Feldman. I'm a comedian. I expect a per diem. I expect a hotel room. Who's going to pick me up at the airport? Nobody picks you up. I'm, I'm being serious. I've always wondered about this. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think so. To, to my knowledge, no. There's no. Uh, yeah, there's no per diem for, um, for for witnesses. This is worse than Uncle Stinky's Chuckle Hut in Austin. It's not. We have to pay your own way. This is okay. Yeah. The argument uh, against the impeachment is it fair to use the term insurrection because. An insurrection, as I understand it, is to overturn the government. Is that is that the definition of insurrection? Yeah, I mean, look, there's there are also insurrection is a crime. There are legal, you know, legal definitions and legal implications to to, to actually, you know, claiming there there was an insurrection that took place. Um, I think the way it's used for the six is a bit more colloquial. I don't know that everybody is commenting that every single person there, technically by the letter of the law, broke, the, you know, uh, absolutely violated that particular uh, uh, piece of statute. However, I, I would suggest, I would posit this: it's not, it's the, the, the riot, the the um, uh, you know, the, the assault on the Capitol didn't take place over the ACA. It didn't take place over, over Obamacare. Over Obamacare. Over Obamacare. It didn't take place over tax bill. It didn't take place over, you know, any any number of other pieces of legislation. They specifically came on January 6th to disrupt the transfer of power, uh, the, the the required part of our system where where the the United States Congress certifies election results that come from states. Um, I, I, look, we have a long tradition of, of the peaceful transfer of power in this country that came to an end uh, earlier this year. Absolutely. You cannot claim that we had a peaceful transfer of power um, this year where several people died, people were beaten. Uh, you know, that's not that's not peaceful. Um, and that's to the great shame of, uh, of people who participated in that. I mean, I don't know about... Um, I don't know if people have been charged, you know, uh, specifically, um, uh, uh, you know, in violation of, of, uh, of the statutes, uh, you know, regarding insurrection. But at the very least, they are domestic terrorists in my mind. Right. Um, and uh, that would be the be that would be the best case scenario for uh, for you, I think, if you if you actually. So, but what happened? Again, look, as you you listen to my show, you know 
where I stand on Trump. I, by any means necessary, he and Giuliani and Bill, they should all be in jail. I mean, I think they are the most dangerous characters. Uh, it was a ground game that the Democrats had to play against Trump for four years, stop him inch by inch. Uh, it, it was a, it was, it could have been a lot worse had the Democrats not tried to stand up in the courts. I think in many ways it was the courts and Congress uh, left to their own devices. They would have, God knows what they they would have achieved. And and I think there were I think people like Pelosi. I I not for you to say, but I I think Congressman Ted Lieu. I think people were genuinely spooked by this guy. Like, this guy is, there are things that we will find out later. Uh, you know, I remember when he was disinvited to the State of the Union, and at one point I thought the Republicans were going to invite him, and he was going to give his own speech and just take over the Capitol. Uh, and then, you know, a year later, his people did. But that being said, why why didn't the people who stormed the Capitol fire weapons? They were heavily armed. They they did not seem they didn't kill Officer Sicknick. They they bear sprayed him. We're getting a report that he died maybe from natural causes, two strokes the day after. That doesn't seem right to me. I think the, the insurrection played a role in it. But if you're going to overturn election results and overturn the government and you're heavily armed and the Capitol Police are trying to just tamp things down and not really fight back, why weren't they firing shots? Why wasn't it more violent? Doesn't it suggest that it wasn't as a coordinated quote-unquote, insurrection as it was painted? Well, I, I don't know that in order for it to be insurrection, it has to be as organized or coordinated as, as I, you know, I, I think you sort of suggest there. I think there is a lot of evidence that it was um, uh, uh, sort of well thought out, well, well planned. Um, there's lots of video evidence to, to, to show that, uh, much of which we... Um, you know, we, we uh, uh, displayed at the trial. Um, I'm not sure that you can watch some of the, that violence and not, you know, draw the conclusion that there were people out there that it were, was um, it was the stuff from the New Yorker, the videos that the New Yorker got their hands on that you showed during the right. terrifying. Yeah, and there were there were other weapons that were. Um, I mean, I guess to your specific point of why didn't you know why weren't there people with assault rifles? That, that that kicked down the doors and started, you know, started really firing. I, I, I don't know. That's, it's, it's, it, you're right. It is an interesting question. These are certainly people that would have access to those kinds of weapons. Um, uh, you know, maybe it, it speaks to the, uh, you know, the, uh, just the, 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 the nature of this, that it was a little bit, um, you know, sort of uh, spur of the moment that people, it was a little bit like the, like the, um, you know, the dog that catches the car kind of mm-hmm. yes. inside and, and be able to do any of this stuff. But then, you know, juxtapose that with people coming in with zip ties, you know, attached to them that seemed ready to go in paramilitary right. outfits and, 
and the rest of it. I mean, um, you know, there were there were cars that were that were um, uh, searched and confiscated later that had Molotov cocktails and and you know however many X rounds of bullets. And again, the pipe bombs we mentioned at the at, at the very beginning um, outside the DNC and the RNC. So. Um, I mean, if those, put it this way, David, one simple thing is different. If those pipe bombs go off as they were intended to in front of the RNC and the DNC, we talk about January 6th in a very different way, right. don't we? Right. I mean, if, if those explosions happen and potentially people died and there's huge gaping, you know, craters in front of each of those, right. um, each of those offices, this becomes a very, very different thing. Um, but are the Republicans prepared to make it a different thing? I, I, well, I, that I can't, you know, I, I don't know what's harder. Get, get me in the mind of one of the terrorists that attacked the Capitol on the 6th or get me in the mind of a, of a Republican legislator. Um, uh, I, I don't know what, what the limit will be is for them. I'm not sure that, that there is one. I think they may have proved that uh, by voting not to certify the election after the 6th. I mean, um, and there's people, you know, to this day trying to rewrite history and, and talk about that as a, um, you know, as, a, as, 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 you know, uh, run by Antifa or the, pe- the people had a point or, you know, whatever the, uh, the latest is. I mean, it's, uh, the, the polling on this is quite disturbing, actually, when you look yeah. at what Republicans believe about, about January 6th. Um, so what are we up against? Uh, we're talking with Mark Savasco. He is chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, 33rd congressional district, I believe, in, in California. And 33rd. one of the best Congress people. I think he's Howie Klein's. Well, I shouldn't speak for Howie Klein, but I suspect he's Howie Klein's favorite Congress person. He's up there. I'm sorry. I said he's up there. He's, he's up definitely there. up there. He's definitely. Howie said to me that suggests that the reason McCarthy wasn't brought in as a as a witness or a Butler who witnessed the phone call that would have uh, embarrassed McCarthy, the Republicans, was because they're propping McCarthy up. That the feeling in the Democratic Party is as bad as McCarthy is, Steve Scalise is even worse. And they were, they're trying to prop up the Republicans long enough for them to get their, their act together and, and be responsible, which begs the question, is that possible? Is there anybody good on the other side of the aisle? Is there somebody you could name who is an honest interlocutor, an honest broker that you can, as a chief of staff, can you call somebody on the other side and say, look, we want to work on a piece? I mean, Gates, I think, was Gate was it Syria where Gates was bipartisan? Yeah, he, he he did actually have a few uh, a few good a few good foreign policy. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, who? I mean, what, are are there any Congress people you could think of who are Republicans who you would be sorry to see go? Well, those are two. Sorry to see go, or that I can work with. Those are different. I mean, I'm never really sorry to see one go. <laughs> I should say it this way. I, I suppose it depends who, who's replacing them, right? So, right. You know, you do have certain members that are, you know, like a, you know, that that, that are decent um, human beings at least, and um, uh, if they get replaced by, you know, whatever. Another ghost star. 
Yeah, right. People who are less likely to. I've heard Louis Gohmert, Alan Grace, Congressman Alan Graceman says he laughs whenever I bring up Louis Gohmert, and he says it's unfair because Louis. This is what Alan Grayson says. Louis believes what he's saying. So um, can, can we at least, no. you can be wrong, but it, if you come by it honestly, it's more forgivable. So are there any Congress people you can think of? Any Republicans uh, who genuinely... Yeah. Uh, and on, on top of that, I, uh, the other thing that's really... Um, part about Louis Gohmert is he's actually a nice person. I mean, I disagree with everything he says and stands for, um, but, you know, you meet him in the elevator, he's a very friendly, amiable guy. I mean, he really is. Um, right. Not just, it, but it shows you, and you're right. I mean, that, if so I had to ask you to take, you're, chief, you're the chief of staff. You, I know you have a background in the Navy, and I think you worked for the Obama administration, correct? That's right. Yeah. So you would never switch sides. But in, in an alternative universe, could any could you make a case for anything the Republicans call for? Is there anything? I guess austerity, maybe fiscal austerity. Uh, um, yes, but that's a really that is a really good question, actually, especially for someone who's been in it. You know, yeah. you know, as I have. Um, I mean, my, my career is getting so so old that Matt Gates wouldn't even date it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, look, I, I think that there are wow. there there are some uh, Republicans who I think are are people of principle, and and what I mean by that is um, while I may disagree with their particular you know policy prescriptions, um, they genuinely want you know, at least sort of the same things that I want, which is, a, a you know, a, a free and open society and prosperity for other people. I mean, Republicans will say they, they don't think they're screwing over, you know, um, you know, uh, the poor, pe poor people or minorities or other groups. Their, their philosophy on it is just different. They think, you know, wealth will trickle down. You, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, if we create opportunities for everybody, the, the cream will rise to the top, and that it's sort of sink or swim for everybody else. But that's fairer than letting the government get in there and make all these decisions. I, I can at least empathize with, um, with that. I disagree with it, but I, I can understand it, and I can understand healthy fear. I, actually, maybe this is the best way to put it. I can understand a healthy fear of the government. I, I can appreciate that, and I think more, Republicans often. Um, I think put that at the forefront of their thinking. Uh, my, my suggestion is I'm just I'm willing to open that aperture a little bit. I don't think the government is the only thing, is the only entity that can take away your freedom. Right. <laughs> right? Big company that's polluting you know, the, the water is also taking away my freedom. Right. Um, you know, a a, a a madman that shoots up a, a, a school or um, you know or, or a mini mall is is also taking away my freedom, and so. Um, I empathize with Republicans who say they believe in freedom and say they, um, you know, they want to create a, a more just society. I just don't think they've got the right policy prescriptions. And that used to be what the fight was about, right? That used right. to be, you know, it, it was we both sort of have ideals and we've got sort of a, just a different way of getting there. Um, now um, we're, we're, I mean, we're literally fighting reality here. I mean, we've got members of Congress who believe that that because I'm a Democrat, I'm a party. 
uh, or to an international sex trafficking ring that, that drinks the blood of and you know funds space lasers or something or Jewish space lasers. I mean, this is this is. Well, it's you know, true it's, about um, that. The uh, Jewish uh, space lasers. The Jewish space lasers are true. Well, Come we know we're not supposed to talk about the Jewish. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I I invested. Listen, two quick questions because I, I want to be respectful of your time. Can we do this more often? Because I don't think you'll be impeaching Biden in the in the. Right. I, I, unless unless Marjorie Taylor Greene gets her way, uh, no, we probably okay, won't. Okay. So, do you have more time for me now? Yeah, sure. Good. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm happy to do this more more frequently. Yeah. Well, let me ask, great. Because you have given us such great civics lessons, and uh, and and you're an expert on appropriations, so we could talk about reconciliation and how Biden is moving the needle through uh, budgetary tricks and stuff like that that we should pay attention to. Not a big fan of Biden on this show, but we should find out what exactly he's doing. Has he, has he under underperformed or overperformed in your view, though, in the first 100 days? Uh, well, let's see, 100 days this Thursday? Is that is it Thursday? Uh... I was going to say I'm not about to be evicted, but he has put a moratorium on evictions. Uh, no Medicare for all. Uh, you know, in, it, unless he can turn this economy around so that people have so much money they can overpay for health insurance and not sneeze at it. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm a Medicare for all person. I, I just don't see... It's the issue. It's the civil rights issue of our day that that we have so many Americans who can't afford their insulin. They they they're choosing between food and insulin for their children. Uh, you know, uh, until we nationalize the health insurance companies, everybody falls short, in my estimation. Um, so yes, he's. It's not my job to be Biden's cheerleader. It's my job to uh, call him a disappointment, which he is. You know, I'm Bernie or bust. The, the health insurance companies need to be put out of business, and you can't say you're for Medicare for all, and not also say the health insurance companies have to be put out of business because you can't have Medicare for all with health insurance companies. You know. Uh, my last question is, on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, we were talking about lies and how the Democrats believe one thing, which, because we're Democrats, we know to be the truth, and the Republicans have this alternative universe. Do you think the Republicans trust the Congressional Budget Office, the General Accounting office, the GAO, and the inspector generals. Because one of the things I've noticed is the truth is Derek Chauvin was convicted. And everybody says yes. The Republicans say yes, he's convicted. Yes, he's been sent to prison. We can all agree on that. Now, whether or not the jury was terrified of riots is bogus, but that's what the Republicans will say. Do the Republicans 
on the Hill, when the CBO scores a bill, does everybody accept the CBO? Does everybody accept the findings of the GAO? Does everybody accept an inspector general's report? I guess during the first impeachment, the inspector general was called into question by the Republicans. But for the most part, when the rubber hits the road, do the Republicans accept the CBO, the GAO, and the inspector general's reports? Yeah, I I think so. Um, you know, it's 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 fine to have a healthy, um, you know, and vigorous debate from time to time over. So I mean, we just had a bill actually that I that I'm angry about the CBO score on. I just think you know the, the way they score leases is crazy. And if you really want me to bore your your audience to sleep, we can talk about the way the CBO scores the government leases. But um, but but I do think I think generally those are still things that are parliamentarian rulings, for example. You know, CBO scores, uh, IG reports a little less so because they do, they are in some sense, and they're not, they're not really partisan, but it's still a, you know, uh, there's still an angle there in, in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a watchdog on the agency, um, and, and, you know, different IGs have different, you know, reputations or whatnot, but, but for the most part, the IG reports as well are considered pretty, you know, as far as Washington goes, pretty infallible. Um, so in terms of arriving at a truth, yeah. the government, it's x the, the truth is out there. If you want to know both sides of an issue, our government has explored both sides of an issue. They're, they're, it's just not being reported on. When You can't read, for example, if you want to see Zuckerberg's testimony, you can watch it, but that takes eight hours. You can't read it. They, the transcripts are not available for a reason I want to get into with you later. But if there were a news organization just working off all the information available on the Hill, it would be the most powerful news-gathering operation in the world. If we had reporters who just poured over hearings, studies, didn't, you wouldn't have to do the legwork. You just went to the hearings and got both sides. You could have a 24-hour news channel that delivered the, 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 the closest iteration we could possibly have of the truth. I... I don't disagree. I mean, ostensibly, that should be what news organizations are doing now, right? I mean, these are these are firsthand accounts and and uh, uh, raw materials. That, that, you know, they, they should be able to take, for example, an IG report and, and give you sort of an in-depth. But they don't. Uh, they don't. They don't. Too often, it's 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 infotainment, right? It's it's. Right. Uh, it's, it's what about government-sponsored? A, a government-sponsored news organization, where. It's headquartered within the Capitol, and you have reporters who act like inspector generals or the CBO and the GAO working with trained journalists to take all these press releases and make them digestible for 360-some-odd million Americans. Wouldn't that be the best use of the information that's out there? 
My, I have to think about it. My, my preference would probably, or my instinct sort of tells me I'd prefer it not be a government thing. That's right? a problem. I just that's, agree with that's, it. That's a problem, right? That that just, and, that just lends itself to, you know, like propaganda, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, arm of the government. And, um, I, I, but who's, who is the propaganda arm of the government? Microsoft spends a fortune on propaganda for Microsoft. Every time I turn on the TV, I hear how great Bill Gates is, and I hear how he's saving everybody, and nobody questions that because he buys advertising. And But nobody is – there's no propaganda arm for my government. So all I hear is that government can't do anything right. We need Democrats – who believe in big government and are and, and, and can sell the idea of government to the American people. We're, if I, I'm a big government Democrat. I mean, I believe in big, big, big government. I believe in nationalizing industries that fail but are necessary. I believe in government. I think government is exponentially better than private enterprise. I'm not a communist, but I do believe in big. I believe in the post office. I believe in a, in a draft for the military. I believe in a fire department. I believe in a defunded police. But I believe in government. We need Democrats who who can sell government to the American people and say government. Nobody's selling the idea of government to the American people. Yeah, no, it, look, it's a good point. I, I, um, I too believe in government. That's why I, that's why I work for it. Um, I'm, I'm focused on, and, and I think, uh, you know, I don't want right. to be Congressman Lou, but we're, we're focused on trying to make sure the government that we've got works better uh, before we create, you know, sort of more government, I guess. But um, more uh, government. You know what? what? Well, look, I'll put, I'll put this, this country wants more government. But would, we we want a bigger government. Every now and then with, with my Republican colleagues who, who always, you know, especially during the George W. Bush administration, it was all about cut, cut everything, right? And, um, uh, and, out, and outsource things, right? They wanted to outsource the IRS tax collection for a while, and we fought that. And we had these big debates over inherently governmental activities, right? So in other words, if the government was going to have to keep doing this function, it makes more sense to do it in-house rather than outsource it. And... Um, uh, you know, the, the, so so the, this is a you know this is a long you know a long to be continued to be continued. Yeah, we can, we can Here, just but hopefully you'll come back next week. Think about in the in the interim. Sure. I want more government. I want banking. I want postal banking. I want the government to run Amtrak completely. I want more government. I want to be able to call the government and have it do things for me because Spectrum. Sucks. <laughs> Spectrum sucks. So I want a government option. And at least the new polling shows half our country does. And I want government advertising. I, all we get are politicians advertising. I want to see, hey, we're OSHA. Do you have a boss who's killing you? Give us a call. We'll, we'll, we'll take care I, I, want a, I want a propaganda arm for big government to be continued. Mark Savasco, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to see you. And uh, Mark Savasco is 
chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, who may be the best congressperson in Washington, D.C. Your word. One of the best. And the views and opinions expressed by Mark Savasco in no way represent those of Congressman Ted Lieu, but they do represent mine. Everything Mark Savasco says, I agree with. Thank you. Thanks, David. Great Appreciate job. It. Thank you. You're, you're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And let us now go to our old friend. There he is. Unmute yourself. He is the host of In Hot Water. And I haven't seen you for a while. And you have a, a new special. It's not that new. 25 sets where your microphone doesn't scrape against your hoodie. There you go. Please welcome Aaron Berg. You have the look. You have the look of a man who's still scraping his microphone against his hoodie. I'm not. I'm holding it off of my hoodie. Shit, scraping on my hoodie at all. You you look like somebody who lives in New Jersey. I'm in Jersey. You have a New Jersey yeah. porn mustache. I don't know if you've seen this. It's the New Jersey. <laughs> I moved to Jersey, and it must be something in the water or the chum, but I'm gay now. All right. And I am so happy. What a night we had at the Oscars last night. Hurrah, hurrah, <laughs> I say. I'm gay. Look at the mustache. I'm gay. I'm gay. I'm a lord of the gay. They call me the lord of the gay. I dance. I have this one move where I open my butthole and I go, who ordered the rusty paint can lead from Lowe's? I'm gay. Okay. Congratulations. My wife is miserable. I mean, last night I put this strap on on her and I said, go do the work on daddy. And she got creeped out. I'm gay. It's just a mustache. I'm trying to, it's mustache May. Uh, all proceeds that we are raising go to help milk my prostate into the sink. Okay. I'm getting the bends from the last conversation. Let me just let me just reconnoiter here. So it's good to be back. Let me say this. Me and you did it. We got Trump out of office. And it took a long time, but together we did it. And now we have a new president. Uh, it's great to have a guy that can actually finally fall up the stairs. So it's, uh, <laughs> he did fall up the stairs. He You're fell right. up the stairs. It's yeah. very rare. Yeah. Uh, what a great time. I, I've missed you. I know you uh, haven't wanted me on your show because you found out I got that 1488 tattoo on my chest. And uh, <laughs> what, is, what is 1488? That's actually the price that I paid for a $15 bag of hot dogs. <laughs> I think it had something to do with the Holocaust. There was some number in there. But I know uh, you're very aware of all the stuff that happened. And a couple months ago, you know, the uh, the woke mob was coming for my head. And they reached out to you. And they go, we know Aaron's on your show sometimes. And you go, yeah. And I'm not going to stop having him on my show. And then you stop having me on your show. Well, well, I, you have actually you have a tape of a call. I do, but you're not going to play it. You're not going to play it. So there was an article in the New Republic. Let me find this. Hang on. Don't play the tape. Two and a half months ago. Bring, bring. 
Bring, bring out my matzah ball soup. It's going to blow over. I don't know if I should answer that or not. Bring, 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 bring. It does sound important. However, it is so close to Passover. I don't want to upset my family for a big Zoom Seder. Oh, there's a landline phone. I've got to put my pants on. I can't masturbate as if I would, like it was Zoom, and I was watching one of my niece's recitals. No, don't boil over, Mustafa. <laughs> you've reached the Feldman household. I'm very busy currently. Now, I know that I'm speaking like this is an answering machine, but this is not an answering machine. Please leave a message for me to answer you right now. I'm here right now. Mr. Feldman? Yes, this is me, David Abramovich <laughs> Feldman. Who's calling? It's, it's me, Steve Simonis. <laughs> Steve Simonis, I don't know who you are. Well, I'm a canceller, and I go back and cancel comedians. A canceller. Yes, a canceller. <laughs> and I cancel comedians way back in the day. Now, I know what you've done, David. What do you mean you know what I've done? That time I was at the Grist camp, and I finger-popped a lady, and then I tasted it, even though it wasn't kosher? Why, why would you bring that up? I had no, no, there was no reason to do that, and now I'm somewhat erect, and the dog is licking peanut butter off of my mouth. Hang on, oh, I'll wait, Fluff, Fluff, Mr. Feldman, you have approximately two days to further distance yourself from Ehrenberg, or we will let everybody know what you did in the past. Wait, oh, Jesus Christ Almighty, I don't know what it is. Is this the time that I put my entire extremities into a shofar and then watch the rabbi blow it? And I laughed and laughed and laughed. He didn't know he was tasting my penis, but I knew he was tasting my penis. And I was just bombed this butt, which meant that it was very erect. And back then, do you know, by the way, uh, Mr. Steve Simone, that I couldn't even ejaculate. I would masturbate seven, nine times a day, and all that would come out was air. And I go, this pee is invisible. That's not what we're talking about, Mr. Feldman. What we're talking about <laughs> is we know that you've written right-wing propaganda as well. But you really, oh boy, did you read my poetry book that I wrote to my first love, Rebecca Turnenbaum, called Why You Will Always Love You? Feldman, do you remember the second sonnet in that poetry book? Yeah, I, I believe I did. Rebecca, Rebecca, I love you. Rebecca, Rebecca, when I'm old enough, you'll make me goo. Rebecca, Rebecca, I want to taste you. Rebecca, Rebecca, why does your dad work at Goldman Sachs? Rebecca, Rebecca, I'd love to jizz him on your back. Rebecca, Rebecca, please be my bow. Rebecca, Rebecca, you'll never know how much I love you. I love you. As a Jew, so much so it's not even true. Though I'm not urban, although I'm talking slang, I'd really love to fill you up with my Jewish way. Let me finish inside you. Let's have a boy. Let's have a girl. Let's send them all around the world. We send them to a really good school because me and you, as Jews, will be so cool. I can't wait till we have sex. I won't put it in your back door. That's not kosher because me and milk mixed in there. And if you did that, I would have to bury your asshole in the backyard with the place that my booby wand put salami on by accident when she thought she was buying corned beef. And it turned out it was Genoa salami. Please be with me. Be with me. Rebecca, Rebecca, also make sure that you vote for George W. Bush. The end.
what you normally make as a stand-up. What I make, everything, three times my weekly rate. And so that's good money. It's great money. Okay. But it's sucking the devil's dick. Now, was it I union? Reminded, was it union? No. Yeah. But I'm reminded of what you said. You said there's a lot of money on the dark side. And I go, what's that mean? And you go, I wrote for the BET Awards for nine years. Oh, stop. So I I take the job. I tell my wife. I go, here's how much they're going to pay me. Here's who I'm writing for. So at first, she's like, 
oh, well, the money's great because we can buy a lot of stuff. And then she starts getting upset about it. Then, all of a sudden, we don't know why they decide not to go with me after they offer me the job. This is on the Tuesday. It's supposed to be a Monday to Friday gig. Tuesday, the guy starts ghosting. So hey, did, you show up the, did you show up at work? No, I'm not George from Seinfeld. Oh. Uh, I, I, uh, and then I was upset and I go, I, I go, I don't really care. It's a writing gig. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm the face, I'm the talent, but I was a little upset and Christine said, but this is, this is Fox News. You know how evil they are and you just got to see it up close. So then I went outside Don Lemon's house and I opened my mouth up wide and oh, I said, come on. Daddy oh, come on. Daddy up. So that was good. That was the instance where uh, we realized that, uh, you know, the dark side does have dark elements to it. But it's also on the other side, too. And no, I don't. What politics? Let me tell you, I, I believe in America. I believe well, there's that, your mistake. Right there. Right there is your mistake. You're, you know, the problem with you is you're an immigrant. You came from Canada, and you got to get on the anti-American bandwagon. Mm-mm. We're America well, lasters here. I, I know what you are and what you stand for, and it's great that you believe that you can help the world and that everybody's entitled to equality. No, no, we believe on the David Feldman Show, we believe yes. that America helps the world by falling behind. Oh, well. That's how we lift, that case, the, we lift the world by falling back. In that case, Canada has moved ahead of America. I don't know if you've been following the news, yeah. but you love that country. And now that country, where I came from, mm-hmm. so I'm allowed to say this, uh, is crumbling. They're on constant lockdown. They're supposed to have one of the best healthcare systems in the world, but they don't have enough vaccines to vaccinate their high-risk people. By the way, I'm vaccinated, so you would be very happy. Uh, and... They, they just shut down travel from India, which was an act that a year ago, if America did it, would be called xenophobic and racist, but now Canada's doing it. So I, and I know you're going to have Mark Breslin on today. I don't know if you're going to get to it because I know you'll probably talk about the Oscars, but let me know what your thoughts on that are. I maintain some, somehow it's America's fault that Canada can't vaccinate everybody. Come on. I have to come on. That's the format of the show. I I have a format, and I have a mustache, and I'm gay now. Open up a little bit. What what do you really think? Nobody's perfect, but Canada's damn close. I'll take your Canadian citizenship if you don't want it. So you know when America's called xenophobic and racist for shutting down the borders from China. Nobody's perfect, right? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. A country is not your wife, even though <laughs> the word country. I was going to say even though the word country, when abbreviated, no, the uh, a country is not your wife. I love my children unconditionally. I love people unconditionally. I do not love my country unconditionally. The, con- the country is, is not a corporation. A corporation is a human being, but right. America is not a human being. 
I, I get what you're saying. I can I, love. I'm not disagreeing. I love Spectrum unconditionally. Because, no. Uh, these are not human beings. The country is not a human being. And it has to live up to my standards as a Jew. Otherwise, I expect it to either round me up or kick me out. Yeah. That's, that's my compact with any country I live in. I stand in judgment of any country I live in, and it's their responsibility to round me up or kick me out or change. And it's your right to do that. That's, that I can't. That, I stand in judgment of any country I live in, and you better you better meet my standards. Do 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 it as a David Abramowitz Feldman, me threatening a country. <laughs> Oh, all right. We're monkey now. I just dance. We're hanging with me talking Go back three years ago. David Feldman outside of the White House. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Hey, Obama! It's me, David Abramowitz Feldman. I know what you did in Flint with your bombs, and I know that you're still smoking cigarettes after you went basketball. I know what you're doing. Hey, Barrett. Hey, Barrett. Let me say this. I, David Abramowitz Feldman, am a proud, unproud American. And let me tell you this. Barack Obama, and I'll tell you this as well, Joe Biden. You're never gonna be in this White House again. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I shouldn't have smoked all this weed at this forest. I'm doing. Oh boy. Now let me tell you. Oh, hello, stranger. How are you? I'm David Abramov. I have my own podcast called the David Abramov If you have nine spare hours on your bus to Baltimore, perhaps you'd like to listen to it. And also, make sure you click below the link and subscribe. That's not my penis. That's me talking into the video right now. Now, I am planning a thing that will happen in about three years where I am going to bring some of the greatest patriots in this nation and we are going to storm the Capitol. Would you, I'm sorry, sir, sir, that's my collar. Please don't your nose on my collar. Here is the thing about America. 1A, the First Amendment, freedom of speech. Do you hear how German it sounds? I am not a Nazi. I do not want to live in the Nazi government. Now, let me tell you this. Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Look at these arms. That's right. I do Pilates. Do you know why? Because my instructor told me if I got good enough, I could put my own smackle in my mouth. They were liars. And I should have been doing Bikram yoga, but I studied Bikram, and it turns out that the guy that invented it not that good of a guy. He was doing a whole bunch of sex with ladies that weren't really into it. I watched it around the same time that I watched the Waco documentary, and I hold them to be very similar people. I'll tell you that Bikram guy and that other guy, old boy, he was Christian. And I'm not saying nothing against you if you are Christian, but good luck to you because you're not going to make it out of here alive. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, look. There's a deli down the street. I gotta go there and have sex with someone that's not my wife. But please don't tell anybody about this. Wow. Listen, when you come back next week, because I talk a bit, but you're a genius. You really are. I talk this big game about standing up to the police mm -hmm. and how the police work for us. Yeah. And I want you to do 
the tape of me getting pulled over by a police officer and how that's I, hilarious. Yeah, you I, remind I, me. Yeah, I, I want to do that next week. Just me, yeah. me being tough in, in yeah. front of the police. Now, supposedly Mark Breslin. We pre-plan it. That's how the best comedy works out. Sit on this for a week and then get back to me. Uh, well, if Breslin doesn't show up, you may have to do it. Are you doing comedy? Yeah, I'm doing I got uh, 50 sets in the city this week. No, seriously. This week. This month. Yeah, comedy's back. Where? Where are you doing? Five shows on set. Gotham Comedy Club, The Stand, uh, a couple other places. The comic strip I'll be at, I think, on Friday. Um, yeah, it's back. You should come out. I open with, uh, boy, the traffic's horrible. When's the second wave in the Olympic City? <laughs> Can we please get a new variant that just affects people driving in Manhattan? That would be phenomenal. <laughs> what are the clubs like? Th these aren't Good. like illegal shows. This is sanctioned no, by Andrew Cuomo, right? Look, I, I'm, people are not offended at all. Some of the same bullshit exist. You'll still see like some drunk tourists at some of the places, but I mean, when I'm at the stand, everything is fair game. I'll do an Asian joke, like a stop Asian hate joke now, and you'll look, and there'll be a couple Asian people. Everyone looks at them to make sure it's okay, and then once the Asian people laugh, everything is fair game. So people are less offended. I think the novelty will wear off soon, and people start getting back to being pissed off, but people are just happy to be out of their house. And in New York, they're calling this the summer of fuck. Like, people are just walking the streets looking to hook up. I talked to a girl, she's like, I'm waxing wax. They're ready to fuck, David. This is our time. This is the summer of love. Post-COVID, if you you can get down to Thompson Square Park and take a tent and pretend you live there, you're going to be boning like crazy. <laughs> so there's going to be a new epidemic, a new viral epidemic. There might be, but I, I think, uh, I don't know. It just won't be COVID, but what? I'm sorry? Did you get vaccinated? Or you I am one shot away from the summer of love. Uh, this, Sunday, got, uh, this Sunday, I get my second dose, and then I can get a, okay. a dose of... Syphilis. You know. Yeah. yeah. I got uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and I went in, they're like, this is 11% effective. <laughs> and is that what you got? Yeah, and they gave it to me, and then they're like, you know, you could have just washed your hands and stayed home. It's basically the same thing. But good news is, I've only been sick twice, and the blood clots are now just in my legs. So I'm feeling a lot better. Hang on one second, if you may. I just found this old tape of apparently you were pulled over driving from New York City to upstate. Yeah, but you don't want to play that year. now. We have to process it. You don't want to play that. Oh, no. I'm hide the goddamn reefer. Leave under the seat for Christ's sake. It's one of them. Oh, Jesus, fuck Gestapo alert. Gestapo alert. Okay, I'm signaling. I'm signaling. All right. Oh, where's my Swiss Army knife? Fuck it. Oh, God. Oh, God. Put it in your pussy. Put it in your pussy. Oh, God. I got a Swiss Army knife. 
I have no license. Fucking locker it. Put it in your locker. Put the reefer in your in your back pussy. Okay, turn off the rap. Turn off the rap. Here's DMX. He's gonna know. He's gonna know. Put a oh god. Put a oh there it is. Simon and God. April, come she will. Hello? Hello? Yes, uh, uh, the, the window, I'm sorry, it's locked, I'm nervous. It's an old horn that my father gave me, I just kept it, it's kind of weird. I'm sorry it's a roll down window, oh my god. <laughs> Hello, officer. Hi, uh, license and registration, please. Now, you know that technically you need to tell me why you pulled me over as a minority who is driving here with my girlfriend, Tina, who has no contraband in her pussy. I would like to say this. Why are you pulling me over, sir? I am an individual who has life, liberty, and the pursuit of the American dream. Yet here you are, stopping me for nothing. And what are you going to do next? Smash out my taillights and tell me you're giving me a ticket? Sir, I just wanted to comment that you were driving three uh, miles slower than the actual posted speed limit. And, and what else? Well, that's basically it. I was just worried for your own safety, and it looked like you were sneezing a lot. I have horrible pollen allergies. And what are you going to pull me over and take away my pollen allergy medication? And I will tell you again, Tina does not have any THC in her asshole. Tina, cough. Tina, cough. Cough, Tina. Now, look, sir, I have a very important Shabbos dinner to get to with my great aunt Helena. Now, if you are going to stop me from doing that, there is nothing less than a hate crime, officer. Oh, Smith, if that is your real name, brown shirt, let me tell you this. I'm going to go up to my auntie's house, and Tina and I are going to have very awkward sex because she clearly has stuff in her pussy and her back door poop pussy. Now, officer, I'd like you to know that I donate to the police athletic league, and I'm also a very avid supporter of uh, Donald Trump, as you can tell by my baseball cap, which I have just pulled out of the backseat for cases like this. Make America green again, as it stands for, and of course, I know that huge China, I know all these things that I am saying right now. <laughs> officer, thank you very much. You have a good day. Oh, boy, Jesus Christ, Tina, I just fucking wet myself. You know what? I don't care. You can be a proud boy. I don't care what your politics are. <laughs> you are so effing funny. Aaron Berg, plug your gigs. You're at the stand. Uh, I'll be at the stand and Gotham Comedy Club this weekend, uh, Saturday. I'll be at the stand all month. Check me out. I'm there almost every weekend. Austin, Texas. Comedians of the Compound, May 14 and 15. We've already sold out two shows. We had to add a third show. Uh, Vulcan Gas Company. Go to Compound Comedy uh, for all of my upcoming Compound dates. And uh, my new merch store, InHotWaterStore.com, and the In Hot Water Handgun. Now available for sale. Go to my Twitter. It is $2,000. It's a vintage 1911 Custom made. I don't know why we're selling guns. But Are you really? We'll talk about it next week. Yeah, let's get into it next Aye. week. 
I love you, Alan. I love you. Have a great show. I'm going to listen to Mark for a couple Okay. Minutes. Mark Breslin joins us from Toronto, Canada. Hi. How are you? So, uh, Aaron Berg. Genius. Yeah, yeah. Genius. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about you. How are you? How are you? I'm good. You know, I started a diet a couple of days ago, and, uh, you know, I've lost um, six ounces. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I kicked my pregnant wife down the stairs. <laughs> That's goddamn gold. That's goddamn gold. I gotta go make the gallon. So, uh. Sorry, the math, I mean, objectively speaking. Yes. That is mathematically correct. As a joke. That's right. As a joke, that is mathematically correct. You lost six ounces. Well, you know, I toyed with doing five ounces, eight ounces. I thought six was the right number because it was more than that thing. She's already had the child. So that's why I thought that six was the right number. And if I said three ounces, you would have said, well, what's that? That's nothing. That's that's water. So Can I make it politically um, correct? What do you want to talk about? Can I make the joke politically correct? I'd rather you didn't, but go ahead. My wife uh, lost six ounces. I took her to Planned Parenthood. She got an abortion, which is every woman's right. Well, then, then, then they can't say they can, then. Then it's politically correct. Yeah, it's not a point. Um, <laughs> um, but hold, pick, put your hang on for one second. Hang on. Yeah. Put, do you remember what you're about to say? Yeah. Okay. Don't forget that. Here's the point. All. Comedy is hateful. It's just how you sugarcoat it. In other words, you could do that same joke and make it a pro-abortion joke as opposed to uh, kicking a pregnant woman down the, the stairs, which is... Uh, the problem with the joke, as I told it, is that it suggests that I, um, I have a problem with women, and I do. <laughs> no, no, listen. The reason I have a problem with women is because... I hate women. And not a lot of people will say that, but I will say I, I hate women. And the reason I hate women is because if you take a look at them as a group, they're loyal, they're, uh, they multitask, they're hardworking, they're sensitive. Who wants to get involved with that? <laughs> right? But, David... <laughs> Let's talk about what's on everybody's mind right now, and that's last night's Oscars. Yes. So, I assume you saw part of it, or all of it. I certainly did. And I'm watching it, I can now say without any fear of, of, of contradiction that abortion is still legal in California. Yeah. I, how do you know that? It was an abortion. Ah, it was an abortion, Michael. It was an abortion. It was so bad. Yeah. It was so bad, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, turning serious for a moment, what, what was the one thing that was missing, for sure? Comedy. Oh, boy. We need comedy in these shows because otherwise it just becomes a big slurpee of everybody's having their tongue every, up everybody else's ass. Right. But at right. least you have some comedy in it. You make sort of poke fun at the industry. You poke fun at the other, at everybody's ego. It, it, 
it lessens the blow, but there was no comedy in it, so everybody looked just so damn serious and egocentric about what they do. It was just an embarrassment. I can't say I disliked everything. For instance, I'm glad that, um, um, uh, what's his name, did not win Best Actor. Uh, the, the the guy who died. Yeah, what's his name? I, I forgot. You forgot. You died. He died. You already forgot. I, I'm a little off. I, I believe Black Lives Matter, pal. I know. Wasn't he in Black Panther? Wasn't he? No, that, that was. Uh, You're frozen. Uh, no, he was in the other one. He was Ma in Rainey. Ma Rainey's Black Panther. Yeah, right. I, which I have. He was seen. in Black. He was, this is my ring Yeah. Anyway, I'm kind of glad he didn't win. And the reason is, not that he's not a good actor, but because he's dead. And there should be a law or a rule that dead actors can't win these things. Exactly. Because it can't help their career. Right. Like, really, what could he do? He could go from, from being six feet under to being four feet under. <laughs> okay, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a climb, I admit. Right? Right. He does three more posthumous roles, and he's out of the ground completely. <laughs> you, the, the, then what do they do? Then what do they do? Oh, hang on for one second. Hang on for one yeah. second. You're, you're absolutely right. First of all, the rule should be you can't be in the in memoriam and win an award the same year. Yeah. That's, that's double dipping. The, yeah. the, the agents can't double dip. Why should the actors? You're either in the in memoriam. The rule should be you you can't be harder than the statue you're accepting. All right. Good point. That's funny. Um, very funny. Thank you. In which case, um, the person who won shouldn't have won either because he's got at least one foot in the grave. Like, really, how many how many roles do you think that guy's got left? Anthony here? Hopkins you're talking about. Yeah, how many? Like, he's, what, 80, 89 or something? At that point, give it to somebody who you can do some good for. <laughs> Lift the statue and mouth yeah, the words. That's right. that's Thank you. Show up, he would have been embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> he needed a fork. He would have needed a forklift <laughs> or, or you know something. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there, there was no host. There was no host. There was no host. And with no host, it means no comedy. I took a look at the writers. There were six writers. There are usually 20. Um, and the only writer I recognized was Richard Gravenese, who's a good screenwriter, but I don't think of him as a funny guy. Right. So where were the, where were the funny guys? Where were the funny ladies? Where, where were the web people writing, you know, jokes for these people? And they were nowhere to be found because it was a serious Oscar because we live in serious times. And we need, and, and we need serious, serious work being done, and we have to uh, approve of serious, serious work. Yeah. And, and the network is thrilled because no headaches. You do comedy, people complain. I'm offended. Well, nobody was offended. Nobody watched, but nobody was offended. Nobody was offended. Sounds like a woke comedy club to me. Yeah. If you're not offending somebody, you're not entertaining them. But all those shows always punch up. They really always punch up. I mean, really, if you're making fun of Brad Pitt, I don't think a lot of people are going to be upset. But you need to make fun of Brad Pitt. Did you see him? No. What is he, 65, and he still looks unbelievable? So 
Yeah, me put him Brad Pitt. He can take it. Yeah. So yeah. it was a real it was a real mess. I can't believe I sat all the way through it. But how, how were you able to sit? I I had no interest in watching it at all, none whatsoever. Well, I'd only seen half of the movies, which is not usual. For I've me. heard I've heard yeah. Nomadland. Once you get past Francis and McDormand doing diarrhea in a bucket, it's over. Yeah. Um, I was, <laughs> Did you see I Nomadland? I so, yeah, I saw it. Um, and I you didn't like it, right? You know, not, I respected it more than liked it. I'm not sure like is the right word for a movie like that. It's saying, like, saying, I saw Schindler's List. Oh, was it great. <laughs> you know, it's, um, <laughs> y- you don't really say you like that kind of a movie. Yeah. But I'll say this. The bigger the screen you see it on, the more sense it makes. Because I saw half that movie on my computer, and then I saw half of it on a 65-inch television screen, and it was a completely different movie. Because the the motor of the movie is the distance between how small those people's lives are, and the vastness of the landscape. And when you see it on a big screen, it makes it just makes more sense aesthetically. Right. right. But um, so, movies, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's what, from what I understand, it's a beautiful movie. It's scenic. And it's elegiac. Yeah, what does that no. mean? The Elysian field? It's a, it's, it's, a, um, it's like a tone poem for a way of life. Hmm. That's kind of sad yet kind of beautiful in a weird, odd way. I didn't hate, I did not hate the movie. Um, I was just bored by it and I could only watch it 20 minutes at a time. And so, when you read that these were the lowest-rated Oscars, no host, no audience, and TV viewing for broadcast is going down, more and more people are complaining about the the the, the staple of broadcast television, late-night comedy. A lot of people have said these shows aren't funny without an audience telling me what's funny. They need a studio audience. Have things changed permanently? Will the Oscars go away? Or will we come back to them once there's an audience? How important is, is well, it to no watch? To the level of there's no end to the level of, of self-congratulations of Hollywood. So, yes, they'll, they'll always be there. Um, but you have to admit, when you looked at the Oscars last night, I've never seen so many ugly, beautiful people in my life. Where was the glamour? There was no glamour. The the most attractive person in the on the Oscars was somebody's Danish wife, but she wasn't even in the business. She looked good. She wore a beautiful dress. I don't know. Who you know. Was. You know. It's but, um, you know. It's ugly people. Like, you know, it's ugly people when your wife is going. What kind of carpet is that? I know it's red. Is is that Congolian? I don't know, but. Different. That's Congolian isn't a carpet, and that's not a joke. Uh, are we going back to the way things were in terms of our consumption of media? Do you think that people are going to watch the same shows that they watched before the pandemic? Or well, first of all, when this thing starts to be over and really over, I don't think people are going to watch a lot. They're going to go out and do things. I see a return to fucking. 
Um, if I had to predict something, I would ret- I would predict a return to mass fucking. Everybody will be fucking. Because it, when people say, what do you miss about the pandemic? And people say, ah, I miss going to that, that ethnic restaurant that I really like. Or, you know, I, I miss getting together with friends. No, you miss fucking. You miss seeing some buddy, some stranger, asking them out and going out for dinner with them and then taking them home and fucking them. This is really what we miss. When that is When that novelty wears off, then I think people will go back to the media. Well, I, I heard Aaron Berg suggest that, but old habits die hard. And I think people hard have... Hard is exactly the right word here. I think people Thank have you. picked up new habits. Now, a lot of stand-ups, for example, I was talking mm-hmm. to a close friend of mine, he's a manager, and he was saying that a lot of comics who have been doing it for a while, and this is like sex, a lot of comics who've been doing it are not looking forward to going back on the road. They they kind of are rediscovering cooking and you know, they, they, they've been forced that they, they can't do stand up and they've been forced to get a whiff of being normal. And I think the same applies to sex. I think a lot of people spent a year not having sex. They probably watched a lot of porn, probably phone sex, did stuff on Skype or Zoom, and they've forgotten how to have sex. David, I I tried phone sex. It wouldn't fit. (laughs) Wouldn't fit. You're, you're, I use the I have to I use the Apple uh, Mini 12, <laughs> um, which I thought would give me the most possibility of uh, that. Not the little Samsung, <laughs> nothing. Right. All right. I suspect I, you're. I think younger people who have not been sexually active are probably missing effing. I suspect a lot of people are like comedians who they missed it until they went. Really? So now I have to meet this person and tell them my life story and pretend to care, and then then I have to satisfy him or her, and then talk afterwards and during, and when they're I could just watch pornography. I think most people aren't going to go back to effing. I disagree, Um, but. It was very. Do you think? Do you think there've been more or more or fewer orgasms? Not. I'm not talking about sex with another person. How many orgasms? I understand. I think more orgasms. I understand this me. I'm sorry. What? I said, if anybody understands the difference, it's me. Right. More or less orgasms in the past year. No, you're asking the wrong question. You're, you're looking at quantity rather than quality. And I would say that there may have been more, but they were not as profound. And maybe in Canada... I think you need another person for it to be... I think you need another person for it to be more profound, that's all. Right, but you, you live in Canada. I live in America where people eat at McDonald's. Because they want to. Eat at McDonald's here too. People want to eat. Eat at McDonald's here too. 
so they're not looking for profundity. They're just looking to stuff their hole. And I, I think most Americans don't know the difference between a good orgasm and a bad orgasm. And I'm glad you brought that up because I've got this new course. <laughs> and I'll admit it's expensive, uh, but I think it's worth every penny. And maybe we'll talk about it next week. What do you think? Yeah, no, we have, we have a, a few more minutes. Okay. Uh, this is an interesting conversation. I think, because I said this at the top of the show, we're living through the 60s. Would you agree that the 1960s was transformative, that yes. we came out of the 60s and everybody thought differently, or most people thought differently? Not everybody thought differently, but enough people thought differently to make a difference. Would you say the pandemic, not because necessarily of the pandemic, but it falls under uh, an umbrella, a time span, because of many components, including uh, me too, exactly. that the world is going to be completely different, unrecognizable in a year. Okay. No, I don't think it's going to be unrecognizable, but I don't think that the world was unrecognizable after the 60s either. I think it has changed, and I think that there are, there are changes afoot. I have never seen so much interest in social change as I have this year compared to, I have to go back to the 60s too, to find another era where that was true. But I also believe that change is incremental, and it doesn't really, it's not linear. You know, it's two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, three steps back. So after the 60s... Are we doing the hokey pokey or talking about change? We're talking about change, and we're talking about the fact that after the 60s, um, there was Nixon, and then there was uh, Reagan. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily go all in one direction. Um, some things kind of stick and some things don't stick. Right, right. Uh, but uh, Nixon, an argument could be made that Reagan was a reaction to the 60s, as was uh, I, I would agree. Right. I would completely agree with that. But it was a, react it was a reaction that lasted eight long years. Or, or longer. Forever. It's, it yeah. feels like it. Yeah, I think there, but something, some things change permanently. Some things change permanently. I, I well, think, for instance, um, you know that scene. There's a there's this great scene in Mad Men where they're having a picnic, and at the end of the picnic, they get in the car, and there's yeah, they just leave all their trash uh, in the park or wherever they were, mm -hmm. and you go, whoa, that would never happen now. So yes, some things really do change. Right. Right. Like, you can't imagine that happening now. Um, you know, if I dropped a candy wrapper on the street, my son would go, what are you doing, Daddy? Right, right. So, uh, I'm due for a madman, madman binge. He is... A madman. Madman was so good. He is so... Uh, you know, I often debate... Uh, Don Draper versus Tony Soprano in terms of who is the better actor because they're complete opposites. You know, uh, to, uh, Gandolfini is operatic. Who plays Don Draper? He's so, I can't remember. Yeah, it's, um... <sighs> I know. Yeah. Uh, um, I need a vacation. Proper nouns go first, by the way, when it comes to Alzheimer's. 
just feel no. What's Alzheimer's? What is Alzheimer's? I don't remember. Me neither. I don't remember. I don't either. Oh, boy. Uh, I've been playing chess, which is great for the brain. Oh. Do you yeah, play yeah. chess with the boy? Uh, yeah. Um, not too often, but he's not bad at it, you know. Um, I, taught him, I taught him the basic moves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like he's going to become part of the Queen's Gambit. But, uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's decent at it, and I'm decent at it. And we play some nice games together. Yeah. I would play you online. I would humiliate myself. Online. Yeah, I don't think that I'm necessarily all that good. I'm good enough to to last in a game. I don't know if any. I don't think people would take me in six moves. Right. But eventually, somebody who's good is going to beat me. Right. But at least I can stay in the game. It's like Rocky. You know, I just want to go the distance. <laughs> so, uh, but here's the thing about chess. Just, here's the thing about going the distance in chess that I've discovered because I've been playing online. Okay. Things are going very well in chess until they're not. Because you cannot lose. I mean, you could in three. It is conceivable to lose in three moves. But for the most part, material has to be sacrificed, which creates the illusion that you're beating the other person. But in order to kick your ass, that person has to sacrifice enough material for you to mistakenly believe you're doing okay, and then it's over in a flash. That's how chess, that's my experience with chess. It's also my experience with bankruptcy. (laughs) (laughs) Things are fine, and then all of a sudden, you're broke. That's from a book. um, Helene Olin. Is it Hemingway who said that, or things are going? I think Hemingway said something like that, yeah. Great. Oh, by the way, the guy's name, uh, the actor's name we're looking for is John Hamm. Who? John Hamm who? Right? What? The guy who played Mad Men, who played Don Draper. Why, why are you bringing that up? Right? Why are you just throwing... Because what? we didn't remember, and I remembered it. Remember what? The reason we don't remember the name John Hamm is because we're both Jewish, and we have some kind of You know who else I can't remember? Who? Kevin Bacon. <laughs> he was great in Hamlet. Uh, yes. Yes. All right. I love you. So great. I wish uh, we had more time. Mark Breslin, next week? Next week. All right. Thank you. Mark All Breslin right, is the here. founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, if not the world. Who's, who's at your Halifax club this week? No, it's closed. Lasted one week, and then they shut down the city. What are you going to do? The numbers went up. Not because of us. Sorry to hear that. Just waiting this thing out. I don't think it'll lift until July. Okay. That's my guess. I'll see you Monday. Be strong. Stay in there. All right. So thank you. Let us thank now you. go. All right. Thank you. Let us now go to somewhere in New York where uh, Pete Dominic is standing by. Uh, you want to do community billboard, Dan? When do you want? Let me just check in in our newsroom with Dan Frankenberger. Boy, your 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 TV looks great. Your camera, Dan. Do you when do you what you want to do community billboard after Pete? Yeah, let's go after Pete. And uh, have you spoken to Ed Larson? I have not. Yes, you have. How is he? 
Oh, he's doing great. <laughs> he's walking around in Rose Garden striking matches for all uh, afternoon. Ah, great. Okay. <laughs> I'll see you in a half hour, Dan Frankenberger. We're uh, doing uh, Don Rickles. Mike Rowe taught us, or taught some of us how to do Don Rickles. Well, Pete Dominic is the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Please welcome Pete Dominic. What are you wearing? What is that? A collared shirt under a collared shirt? Are you Steve Bannon? <laughs> well, great to be back on stage. Great to be here with David Feldman. Looking good, Feldo. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for having uh, the time to to see us. This is great. Love talking to you. I just love talking to you. I mean, if you called me at this time, if you said, "Hey, tomorrow, can you can you just talk?" Uh, I would I would just even if it wasn't recorded for an audience, I would I'd still talk to you. I enjoy it. Do you do that? I don't have any friends, basically. Yeah, I have a lot. I have a lot of a lot of friends that I, I speak to on the phone. It's an interesting thing about men. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have. Friends. I use an, an app menu too, and it's been really great during the pandemic. But it's really always great for men. I, I find them generalizing, but men friends. We when we get on the phone. It's kind of you're on the spot, and I can't take your call right now, even if I did want to talk. And so this this app, it's called Marco Polo, sounds like a product placement. If I record a message to you and I'm walking a dog, and you get back to me whenever. I've been talking to one buddy of mine who lives in Australia, an old friend, every day for over a year on this app. And it's, we talk about all of our problems, our days, our kids. It's great. I like it. Yeah. I guess that's what a normal human being would do. I don't know if it's normal. What's normal, Feldman? What are you saying? That you you don't like to talk? Do you not like to talk on the phone and have conversations with people? I just uh, want to be left alone. That's what okay. I tell myself. That's fine, too. I tell no. myself I want to be left alone. But you don't. You want you want me to call you. I don't know. Hmm. I'll call you tomorrow. Or I'll, or I'll send you a video like this. Because you don't actually want to be, you don't want to talk right now. You don't want to talk when I want to talk. That's one of the biggest problems. I can't talk right now. I'd, lo I'd love to talk to you, but I can't talk right now. That's why using an app like this to communicate is, is kind of fun. It's like a, almost like a walkie-talkie, but you record the, I send you a message in the morning. My buddy's in Australia. He's always a day ahead of time. He sends me back one. I love it. All right, here's my thesis for the show. Okay, let me get your response. All right. This is the 60s. It's bigger than the 60s. This has been a transformative three years, starting with the Me Too movement, accelerated by the pandemic. We are not going to recognize the world that we re-enter once we're fully vaccinated and no longer worried about COVID. Things change. I know things change. But the speed at which things have changed with are not knowing that they've changed. I think people, when they get back to the office or their work or start having sex again, they're going to discover, oh, my God, things have really changed. Yeah. I think it's a, a, a fascinating thesis. It's hard for me to not to be someone who is you know, I'm very young. So I didn't live through the 60s. I'm 45. And I've heard a lot of things. I've read a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things. They didn't have blowjobs until 1965. I, that's not what my mom said. 
Wait, wait, wait. No, I'm supposed to say that's not what your mom said. You're not supposed to crap on your own mother. Who probably blew somebody in the early 50s. No, no, no. That's not how. No, 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 no. Things really have to. No, no. I'm supposed to make fun of your mother. You can. I mean, you can take it. You're not supposed to. What came to mind? There's nothing funnier than a guy calling his mother a hard Well, yeah. Uh, one time, uh, my aunt uh, had a lot of issues. My mom's sister had a lot of issues. And, and my uncle, my mom's brother, told me a few years ago, we were driving, and, and he goes, oh, I'll just call her uh, Diane. He said, you know, your aunt Diana. I go, yeah. He said, uh, you know, in, in her 20s, she was a, how do I say this, <clears throat> Lady of the Night. Really? <laughs> like, can we dig into that one? So I think the 60s had... My immediate reaction is the, the civil rights movement and, and the assassinations and the Vietnam War and Nixon and, 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 and Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy and you know a lot of culture issues. But now... You have the racial issue, which is just in, its, in a new version, but it's the same problem. But I think the thing that's different is the pandemic. You tell me. I mean, did the 60s affect everybody, you know, similarly? Because the pandemic definitely affected everybody in a pretty fairly similar way. And to have the, a, a species experience something, not only Americans, an entire generation of human beings experience a pandemic in kind of a collective way. It is very hard to predict what that means, but I do think it fits your thesis. It, it, it's just, I think there's more dramatic change now, although that war was, the Vietnam War was, was, was very bad. And it, it affects, well, but I don't, I, I don't know. More people died of COVID-19 than did in any war. So it's, you know, it depends on how you look at, at the, the death contracted through a virus versus death in a, you know, in a, in a war like that one, an unjust war to be. Frank. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that in the 60s, people hated the younger generation. Mm. The younger generation was not taking it, and it sure feels like the younger generation ain't taking it. Yeah, I think there's a lot and, of, I think right? that's a great parallel. And I think that this generation of black Americans is far more educated than that one was. And so there's a lot more power and an influence that black folks had than they did then in terms of just systemically institutions and, and, you know, corporations and colleges. And so, you know, that generation of, of, of black folks in the civil rights movement, I mean, forget gay people, they weren't even allowed, you know, really to come out at that point still. But that generation of black people was angry, but they didn't have access that this generation of black people does to capital resources. And most importantly, to get their message out through social media. And that's true not only of obviously black folks, but any activist or any, any advertiser. So I think the social media and the fact that we're so much further along in terms of uh, black folks having a huge impact and, and, and their way in in so many different institutions. I think that's a lot different. These black folks, these young black folks specifically, 
are far more prepared and equipped with every type of resource, and thankfully they are, because without them, uh, the planet would have died, uh, you know, based in, in the future, based on the Georgia runoff. I mean, I really look at that without any exaggeration. That Georgia runoff election was only because of black people that that, that they won, and it created a, a, a score in the Senate that we, we weren't expecting on November 7th. So I thought that's huge. That's different. Right, right. So our generation of black activists, or as I call them, blacktivists, and they tell me they love it when I call them blacktivists. Do you know Trayvon Free? Well. And he won an Oscar. He did. I'm very excited for him. He's a great guy. Couldn't have happened to a like a better, more original guy who who has had a, such a fascinating life and taken a lot of risks. And what what, what risks has he taken? Well, he's taken a lot of creative risks. I think he's done a lot of unpopular things. I think that he's the kind of guy in the writer's room that doesn't get pushed around too much, and I think that can be risky to not you know, go along with the crowd. I think that he's always been uh, ahead of a lot of other writers in terms of black-related material. And I think that he also, you know, he's a former pro athlete. He came out as... Um, uh, what was his sexuality is kind of fluid, which is, uh, you know, not something that black basketball players come out when he did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so he's just been, you know, a different kind of guy and super thoughtful. I met him at the Aspen Ideas Festival where, you know, only the most brilliant people and me attend. <laughs> the Aspen Ideas Festival. What, what are you doing? I'm just getting some Coke Zero. Aspen Ideas Festival. Yeah, seven years in a row I went there. Yeah. Are they still hiring you, or can I trash it? I mean, you can trash it. I may or may not defend it. depends on what you say. It's run by Walter Isaacson and neoliberals who are kind of working the, the center right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Right. Yeah, but, I, but yes, I think that's fair. But I, I, I don't, you know. Uh, basically, in the la in the last five years, they did a very good job to create initiatives for underprivileged youth, as well as invite a lot of voices that you don't hear in many places, and 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 you know, elevating them to a certain status by inviting them and 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 putting them in rooms, literally with titans of the universe. And so I, I think I don't know. It's Davos. Branding itself as concerned about the planet when, in fact, they're, they're just providing cover for greed. But well, let's move on. Unless you want to respond. No, I mean, they, there's nobody, just, yeah, that's not necessarily, the Davos comparison is not quite, because it's mostly economic related, and, and, and Aspen, they do like healthcare and race and religion tracks. But, but that being said, they also, you know, the guests that they invite are the, People that are often, you know, they're the harshest critics. They invite them. Uh, I met Bill McKibben there for the first time. He is, uh, wouldn't call him a neoliberal. He's a great environmentalist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the transfer. They talked to me. I was like, good to see you, Bill. And what are you eating? And I was like, hey, I'd love to interview you tomorrow. And he's like, no. I'm from Vermont. I'm great in print, but not as good on the air. So Trayvon said something at the Oscars that I said last week a little differently. He said it better. He said that a thousand Americans are killed each year by the cops. 
And what, what the thing that I've been saying is if a 1,000 Americans are killed each year by the cops and disproportionate number of them are blacks and Latinos, we should expect one unarmed black or Latino to be murdered by a cop each day. Yeah, yeah. And that will be in the news every day. This story, is because of Benjamin Crump, because of people like Al Sharpton, because of Trayvon Free, because of Colin Kaepernick. Video cameras, because of video cameras. Well, yes, but also because of people who took a knee. You know, remember when taking a knee was considered unpatriotic? I mean, I have been taking a knee whenever possible throughout my career, but yeah. Less to get work. You were yeah, taking two knees. Wednesday, a Wednesday night spot at Stand Up New York wasn't easy to come by until yeah. the Booker was a gay guy. I don't know. Whenever right. I needed to get on stage, but yeah, these are these are all of these people are go ahead. Wednesday nights were good. This lot. I didn't blow them. I just want to show them. So, my, this, uh, my, so the, and so. Statistics will probably say that more black people weren't killed uh, this year by cops. Can, can I just? But, but it will re, But it will reach this year. It will reach an inflection point where it's no longer tolerable, and we're going to change policing in America. I think. I think talking about police officers killing black people is obviously the worst thing, but it, it often misses the point, and the statistic is true, that they do kill more white people, but at the same time, there's not nearly as many black people. And it's, but know, yeah, per capita, more black but, people. But, but, the, the, but the killing is the worst because it's, it's the worst. But I think that we miss a better argument or better point, which is to talk about just police abuse in general. I mean, last week there was a video of an older white woman who had dementia that a cop arrested and put her in handcuffs. She's like 77 years old because Walmart reported that she stole something. Yeah, she may have because she has dementia. And they put her in handcuffs and dislocated her shoulder. So the killings are horrible. But people will make arguments about statistics and, and try to win points. And I just, I, I always want to move the argument to, no, it's policing in general that's broken. It's abuse. It's police brutality. The killings are the worst part, but the fact that anybody gets caught up in the system for anything from a marijuana charge to a broken taillight, the whole system is broken. You know, my dad was down here. My dad's generally in agreement with a lot of my ideas, but he said, you know, you're very critical of the cops, and my dad is too. He goes, but do you think if you were a police officer, you, you could be a good one? I said, no, because it's not about the people that become police officers as much as it is the system that they're in. If you are a good one, there's so much data on this, and you turn in a bad one, which is a lot of them, you're screwed. You are screwed. They will fuck with you. Well, there's that African-American woman. I think she was in Buffalo. She turned in a cop for punching 
a black eye. Do not turn in another cop. You handle it internally and in a way that nobody gets hurt and we take care. You know, it's the, that's, the system is absolutely corrupt. And so it's not about the people in it. It's that even if you're a good person wanting to be a good cop, you can't be because the system won't allow for it. So we, it has to be completely rewritten. And it's not that radical to simply come up with an idea. And you can convince law enforcement and their families to say, you shouldn't be having to do this. You shouldn't be responding to this type of call. You shouldn't be uh, concerned about your safety in this issue. That issue. There's so many other ways to handle policing. And, you know, I just interviewed this guy today, Scott Heckinger, which I highly, you should have him on your show. He is so smart. And it's just the entire system is so broken and, what, and how uh, it works and how police, policing is done from top to bottom. And it, it, it is absolutely creating more crime than it is solving. And there are statistics to prove that. Yeah, it's They're creating. Coming you now. They're coming to get you now. I hear them. It's creating more crime because the police in America are a criminal organization because, because, I've said this countless times, the cops don't turn in other cops. Therefore, through the yes, sin of omission, the cop, you're, you're, just because you don't murder a suspect doesn't free you from being called a criminal. You witnessed this and you didn't report it. That's criminal. So it makes everybody. That's the least of the problem. That's the least of the issues. That's why you have to, you know, defund or whatever people. I mean, we can argue about the language, but the problem is that there's a lack of opportunity in communities where there's high crime. The problem is absolutely everything about socioeconomics. It's not this culture versus that culture. It's a lack of opportunity. That's why you get crime. And when you criminalize all types of other behavior, then crime begets crime. I mean, they're not solving problems. They're not solving crimes. They're creating Crimes, and you have to change the community. There is, I, mean, I wrote these notes down from earlier when I was talking to this expert, because that's what I do, Feldman. I just interview experts, and the problems um, have, have to do with insecurity and isolation and lack of opportunity. That's where crime comes from, and shame, the shame of having to go to the convenience store and be stopped and frisked. You don't want to go out there. It's a broken system, and it needs to be rewritten, and a, and, and a budget is a moral document, and if you spend most of your money on policing and not on education and healthcare and job opportunities, then you are... Your, your morality is, is broken. It's corrupt. And, of course, you're going to get what we have in the system. I'm done. Pete Dominic is done talking. I've noticed, uh, just adding on to what you're saying, I agree with you 100% that you're done talking. Thanks, everybody. That was Pete. No. I've noticed that we are a punitive culture, that, that we get yes. off. Yes, and, it, our, and our interpersonal relationships are punitive. That we, in some cases, with some people, want to make a case against each other, as opposed to coexisting. That the. No, but, but I think that. I think that's normal. Like I feel that way about you. But I don't. But if you do something wrong to me or my family, I actually don't think punishing you will make it better for anybody. And it certainly won't make it better for you. 
So that, I, I thought that's where you're going with the punitive nature. I mean, the way that we disagree and, and fight with each other, I mean, that's a lot about ego. But this, this kind of... In, it, Do you fight with sense? friends? Do you have fights with loved ones? Huh? I fight with everybody. But, and, and so... Because this is something I've been examining. Name a person in my life, and I'll tell you about a specific fight. My daughter, my wife, my parents, my friends, colleague. Right. <laughs> I've, been, I've, argue with. I've been exploring this for the past couple of years, fighting with people, arguing with people. Oh, interesting. I'm interested to hear what you think and what you've learned. Well, it's coexisting with people, and do you want to make a case? Do you want to win an argument to prove that this person is immoral, inadequate, or in my way. What, 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 what is the purpose of the conversation that's heightened and repeat? Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, ego is, is a huge problem. Ego is the enemy. And second of all, would you rather be happy or right? Right. Would you rather be happy? I, I've never, right? I've been right. I've never been happy. So I'll choose right. <laughs> I usually pick right. I would rather argue and and fracture my relationship in this situation than be happy and content and lose an argument. You know, but it's I got an argument with my dad over the weekend because they I wanted them to be with my kids and I was trying to create the situation for the girls to be with my my parents. And, and and he was interfering and, and, and mucking it all up. I had to argue with him so that he could see the girls more. Like I couldn't not I couldn't let him see the girls less and I chose that argument and, and I had to fight for that one. And so sometimes I think it matters because you don't want to avoid it because avoiding it means he sees them less and that can't be so I choose those types of fights where I'm gonna get an automatic outcome that I hope is going to benefit, especially the person I'm arguing with, rather than me, per se. Those are the Why do you know. think you're a professional talker? Yeah. Why do you think in our personal lives things devolve into arguments? I've noticed... Ego. Ego. 100%. Go on with that. Well, the idea that How I... How does a conversation go from a discussion to a screaming match? When you are impugning my integrity, my honor, my my morality, my honesty, the, what I'm arguing for in this point, when when you are insulting me, when you are minimizing or condescending to me, it 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 offends me to my core because I'm a good person and I don't deserve this, and all of that is wrapped up a lot in ego, and you know, a compassionate person. Uh, a more a more enlightened person will realize that that's not worth it most of most of the time it's not worth guarding your reputation or your ego uh because this this person is the one with the problem this person is the one being do you jerk. think people have I never been on advice by the way do, do you think people have never been taught how to have a conversation they're oh. taught how to have a debate they're not, but they're not told. They're, you're not taught how to discuss a subject without it devolving into who knows more about this subject than the other. It, it, it's, and then the ego plays into. So if you're talking about Black Lives Matter, I've noticed, you know, white people sitting around talking, 
Somebody has to alpha dog the conversation by pointing out a book that I read, and then I, I demand. I mean, roommates. Somebody alpha dogs the conversation to imply that they know more about this subject because they read a book or they were once black and they understand. And, and so they're not, the purpose of the conversation is to establish dominance, not to share information and share opinions. I bet you in elementary school, you know, they teach debating. They don't teach. How do you sit down with somebody and talk about the world without it turning into a screaming well, they don't really teach debating. I mean, that's an extracurricular, like, mock trial or something. I mean, they don't really teach that in core curriculums in most, you know, schools and public schools in America. But uh, but I think, you know, we mostly learn how to communicate and, and have conversations by watching our parents, by watching the adults that we grow up in. But a lot of it is about being heard and about being insecure and about having, going back to ego and, and trying to win an argument. And, and, and so that's why it's important to teach you know, and a lot of, I think, educators are going down this road, poor uh, life skills that you aren't taught, such as, in this case, we can talk about mindfulness, but we also uh, talk a lot about, I've learned a lot about people teaching my wife used to do this, conflict resolution. It's a fascinating thing to teach young people conflict resolution and a give and a take. You feel like karate. Yes, it's the fight. they fight to the death. They bring right. out, yeah, they have a, most schools should have a, a courtyard and a Bengal tiger. <laughs> Who, who's that? We have to wrap it up. Who's on the show uh, this week? Well, I mentioned uh, earlier this guy, Scott Heckinger, who's a public defender in Brooklyn, and he's ferocious. I also talked with a, a guy who's covered immigration and border issues named Todd Miller, who I think you'd love to read, uh, the author of Build Bridges, Not Walls. But I, you, you, you may not uh, like her because she's a Democratic senator, thus, I suppose, automatically a neoliberal. But I had the opportunity yesterday to sit down with Senator Maisie Hirono, who I think is from Hawaii. Uh, she's been, she's hate been, crimes, Asian hate crimes, Asian American. Is really she was really inspiring. When you say sit down, you mean you went to Washington or? Yeah, I went down to D.C. and they put me on her lap, which I thought wow, super awkward. And given her feminism, also weird. But that they were like crush the patriarchy, sit on the senator's lap, and I was like, this is weird. And they're like, sit on it, and then they're like, aloha, and I was like, all right, and right. Did it, we did it virtually. You did it virtually. Wow, you have a great show. I do. Wow. A, a sitting United States senator. It's a big deal. People like to talk to me. Yeah. Now, do you, do you ask rude questions? I'm always worried about uh, guests because uh, the first thing I want to do is alienate them. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's one of the reasons why you are so good in entertaining yourself, though. I, I When I have important people on... Yeah. My my instinct is. No, I think it's funny you say that. I know we got to go, but I, I try to win people over. Like I was, I'd, I'd read her book and I, I, I'd watched her career and and what she had done during the Trump administration. I was genuinely inspired by her. So when we were doing this virtual interview and she popped up on my screen, I was genuinely excited and, and giddy. And I said, I'm very honored. And I almost started crying. And and it was genuine and it won her over. It made her comfortable in that moment. And then we had a great conversation because I was so uh, honest with her about how happy I was to speak with her. I don't know how to do you that. Try that. You no, I, I see that. if somebody's 
generous enough to come on my show, I feel obligated to attack them, to make them uncomfortable. Oh, I, that's, uh, but, that, but that's part of it. I think it's an, a, a great part of your brand. But who would it, here, let's end on this. Who would you really love to interview, interview but you, you, you fear you might alienate them and, and it would go bad? Who is that person that you would love to get on your show, but you worry about that? That issue that you sometimes, which I love. I mean, you can. Matt Gates. I, I think I would ask him difficult questions. <laughs> How come he hasn't been arrested yet? Is this is this all smoke and no fire? I, I just think people have files on everybody. Yeah. And so it goes back to chess. If we are some prosecutors thinking, okay, let's think three moves ahead. I prosecute Gates, then they release the file about my wife and the postman and that kid. So that's how everybody thinks. Everybody operates out of self-interest. Not what's in it for Gates or his victims, what's in it for the prosecutor. Every prosecutor knows that there's what they have on them, themselves, and they proceed accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. Prefer public defenders. Yeah. Pete Dominic, stand up with Pete Dominic. Tell everybody how to listen to your show. I do it daily. I put out a new podcast every day. Got a great news segment every day called The Last 24. I recap The Last 24. I usually interview two real smart folks. We were supposed to, you were supposed to come on last week. Friday is my best day. Okay, let's do it. I would love to, I I would love to ruin your show. I think Friday's off. I think that's why, but I I will talk with you on, like I said at the very beginning. I would love to ruin your show. It would be a thrill to come on and have you lose sponsors and people writing in and saying, this man is a pompous blowhard. Why, Why would you have, I could probably do Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Well, I'll email you again after this. We'll yeah, I'd love to. Come I'd, love, I'd love to have you come on and answer a whole bunch of questions. Okay. I love you, buddy. Thank I you. Love you. Thanks for having me. Oh, are you kidding? Uh, next week, I hope. Thank you. I'm here. Let All us right. now go to Hollywood, California, where the star of How America Killed My Mom, you're still at the Oscars. Yeah, 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 we're at the Oscars here. How you doing, David? Let me respell. Let me respell your name. I did it except here, so hang on. For some reason, there did we you go. Spell my name wrong. I should. I apologize. There we go. Ed Larson joins beautiful, us. Beautiful, beautiful. Ed Larson, and we're doing a screening of your movie. How America Killed My Mother. Well, Dubs from the Oscars. Let me do this. Let me do. Join me as we go to our newsroom where Dan Frankenberger is standing by. Do you know Dan Frankenberger? He's a pretentious douchebag. I do, and that's my favorite quality about Dan Frankenberger. (laughs) (laughs) Give me me five minutes to do Community Billboard, would you? Sure, absolutely. Okay, thank you. I'm glad to see Ed Larson because I saw him uh, standing at a rugby game string a risotto for half an hour. Really? <laughs> yeah. Did you know that Dan Frankenberger has taken uh, Mike Rowe's class in How to Talk Like Don Rickles? Really? Yeah. Can, can, you, uh, can you give us a little bit? Yeah. Uh, who, David Feldman? He was standing in a pontoon boat knitting a yarmulke for 45 minutes. <laughs> this is, he took the master's class taught by Mike Rowe on how to sound and talk like 
Don Rickles. Hey, uh, Dan Frankenberger, how's Ed Larson? Oh, he's doing great. He was staying under a pavilion scrubbing a tank top. <laughs> hey, you know who we need to have back on the show? Who's that? Jeff Ross, the Toastmaster General. Didn't you just talk to him, Dan? Yeah, I was talking to him, I think, uh, two nights ago, and he was uh, walking around a free clinic licking walls all day. <laughs> really? Yeah. You, too, can learn to talk like Don Rickles, take Mike Rowe's master class in talking like Don Rickles. Who? Yeah, have you seen Mike Rowe? Yeah, he was walking around a massage parlor, parlor uh, smashing a fiddle. <laughs> Mike Rowe, he lives in Minneapolis, right? No. No? No? Where, where, is he, where does he live? He, Mike Rowe. He's the great comedy writer. He lives in L.A. He's trying to do a Don Rickles show. He's saying, he say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. No, no, he lives in L.A. What, that's better? <laughs> <laughs> I heard in L.A. there's an auction house where they're breakdancing for 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> Mike Rowe, by the way, let me just plug Mike's book because it's selling. Uh, we love Mike Rowe, and he's got an amazing book. It's called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald, a comedy memoir by Mike Rowe. Please buy it, Barnes & Noble or Amazon, the thing Bezos owns, Amazon, wherever. It's a funny thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald. Please buy the book. It's doing well. Mike actually said that people are buying the book from the show. Cause Amazing. Yeah, my I listeners buy books. They don't read them, but they, they buy them and use them as doorstops. What, what's yeah. happening in community? Kindling. <laughs> what, what, Ed? Kindling. They use, they use Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my listeners are so stupid, they buy a Kindle. Read one book and then lend it out. They just they take the Kindle. It's always good to call your listeners stupid, isn't it? That's how you, that's how you climb to the top of the iTunes charts. Community billboard, Dan. Let's find out what our community is up to. Well, I sent you an email with the pictures in a, a zip file earlier. Hopefully that works out all right. Yes. But earlier in the show, during the news segment, uh, I noticed that you said, open your ears, jerky, and it was clearly a reference to the jerky boys. Yes. And all that was going through my head was, open your fucking ears, jackass. <laughs> so I wanted to bring that up. My One of my sons rediscovered the jerky boys. And the best. The best. The best. <laughs> he shoes, so he has them. Yeah. <laughs> he said it's. He says with. It, he says it ages better with time. Yeah. So Tom and Barb Weber have yes. been doing their concerts on Facebook every uh, Tuesday night for half an hour and every other Saturday night for uh, ninety minutes. You can find them by searching on Facebook, uh, singer songwriters Fair Weber. That's uh, the name of their group on Facebook. And we have a couple of pictures here because Tom is an artist as well. Yeah, okay, just vamp for a second here. Sure. Tell us about uh, when are we doing? Uh, when are we doing? Uh, Diabetic Fury. Yeah. What? What? what, what yeah. Diabetic Fury. We're trying to get it together for the first, but that that wasn't working out, so we're going to move that to the fifteenth. 
And then with our Ed Larson, we're going to do How America Killed My Mother. On We're actually going to do it on Mother's Day. Uh, we haven't really uh, settled on a time yet, but, you know, we're going to get that together and make that happen. We had a successful showing a few months ago, and it was just fun and awesome. We had to do a little bit uh, better job this time because the last time we didn't record it because we wanted to make sure the movie didn't get released in any weird, funny way. But we have promised people credits for certain tiers, so we got to make sure we recorded this time and just like, cut the movie out of the middle and put the uh, put the pre-show and after-show. Right, on. right, right. That's yeah. a good we'll idea. Get that done. We'll get that done this time. I'm still uh, vamping. I'm still vamping. Okay. Well, I had a good fellas quote. Yeah, I do every once in a while. And this one is uh, from Karen Hill. I know there are women like my best friends who would have gotten out of there the minute their boyfriend gave them a gun to hide, but I didn't. I have to admit the truth. It turned me on. Mm. Lorraine Bracco. Yep. How many times have you seen? Between 15 and 20 times, good fellas. Wow. Ed, are you a Goodfellas fan? I actually, I saw it in the theater by myself when I was 10. My parents dropped me off at the theater, and they're like, what movie do you want to see? And I, I pointed at the Goodfellas poster, and, they, yeah. and then I went and saw it. They bought me a ticket, and they sat me down, and they, they're like, what time? They asked the usher what time it ends, and then they came back and got me. Where were you? That they would, Was this in Vegas? That was in Boca Raton, Florida, Mission Bay Theaters. Wow. Yeah, I saw that. And then I snuck into the end of Born on the Fourth of July right afterwards. So it was a it was a heavy day for a little Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least Good Fellas was first because you kind of uh, uh gathered your courage. You're like, yeah, you're just walking into another theater. Murder. Yeah, a little crime now. That's I'm, I'm, I'm mastermind. I'm going to walk ten steps. I'm going to pistol whip anybody. <laughs> All right. This is great. Yeah, this is, well, Scorsese is the best. Uh, should we look at some uh, pictures? What do, you, what do you want to see first? Sure. Um, Tom and Barb Weber. The, the, I mentioned their concerts, and now here is Tom Weber's artwork at TomWeberArt.com. And he has a pen illustration, which is a drawing of a medieval king sleeping with his sword. Ah. I yeah. thought instead of Thor, that was going to be Boar. Thor <laughs> <laughs> the Great. Look at that. Look mm -hmm. at that. It's a cardinal in the snow. Watercolor painting of Water a red cardinal like a in the snow. Oh, you know, you're right. It looks like a what? That's Tom Weber. People should uh, check this show out on YouTube if they're listening to just see Tom Weber's painting, uh, watercolors. Unbelievable. Yep. Then we have uh, a few pictures from Glenn Costick. He made some homemade bread once again. This is a sesame hemp kernel white bread. And that looks amazing. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the next one was, he called it Tano Salad with spinach, yellow pepper, carrot, radish, capers, celery, pickles, olives, beets, broccoli, and cheese. And, and uh, tuna. And tuna. Well, here's the thing. Someone in the comments on this Facebook post, her name was Deirdre, said, what is Tano? And he responded, Tano is Italian for tuna. Hmm. Tuna. Say tuna. 
<laughs> the cans labeled Tano are light and in olive oil. And you find it tastier and easier to digest than regular tuna. So that's important. It doesn't look like white tuna, though. It doesn't look like albacore. It doesn't look like albacore. Yeah, there's, I, I understand. I still want to eat it. Me too. What is this? Oh, he's a glass blower. Right, and so I sent you a couple of pictures. You can't be uh, saying that about him, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, glad. <laughs> These are actually some crystals he passed. Some kidney stones. <laughs> so he's got this situation going on where he sends these out to a customer or two where he blows glass, but there's live plants in them. So after he blows these things, they're actually hollow, and you can see there's live plants inside of them. Yes. I sent you a couple of pictures of them. It's, it took me a second to understand. I was like, oh, yeah. And how could we buy some glass that he's blown? He, <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> if, if we would like him to blow some glass for us. And I don't mean Philip Glass. I could give you his email address, but he he says he does as much as he needs to do locally, so he right. doesn't advertise on the internet or anything. Yeah. You know what his secret is, Ed? What's that? He doesn't swallow. That's where he goes wrong. Yeah, that's, that's where that, that'll ruin you. In fact, anyway. Uh, okay. Is that it? Yes. That's it, brother. Well, so if, you, if, you want, if you want to send anything else to the community billboard, just email dentfeldman at gmail.com, and uh, we'll get it read. Yes. Thank you. So when is office hours and hours? Uh, the first Friday of every month. So that's, uh, that's coming up soon. Is it th no, it can't be this Saturday, is it? This Friday night? No, because that's the 30th. Right. So it'll be, okay, and then we have... It'll be on the seventh. Okay, and then on Mother's Day we're doing Ed Larson's "How America Kill My Mother." Kill my mother. Yep. Okay. All right. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger, in the newsroom. What would we do without you? How would we ever get through? Dan Frankenberger, Ed Larson, comedian, and you host several podcasts. Right. And right. congratulations. You didn't win an Oscar, but you watched the entire ceremony. Is that correct? I actually did. I watched the whole thing. I was one of the 12 people who sat down and watched the whole thing. And Why? Was, uh, Why? I had nothing else to do. I didn't really care. You know, I, I just, I'm curious. And it was easier than reading the article later. No, I don't know. It was fun. It was actually surprisingly enjoyable. I, I was expecting to hate it, but uh, I... I heard it was very funny. It wasn't funny, really. I mean, there was... <laughs> but there funny was, and how unfunny it was. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite thing I saw about it, I can't remember who said it, so I'll probably end up butchering it. But I saw a tweet today that was like, oh, they kicked all the homeless people out of the train station so they can give an Oscar about homelessness. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah so. But, yeah, no, it was the saddest year for movies, I think, ever. In terms of box office or subject matter? Both. I mean, subject matter, of course. I mean, all the movies were very sad. The most uplifting one was Minari, I, I would say. And then no one, and then movie theaters are just closing left and right. And so it's, uh, 
it's it's been sad for that. I mean, I love going to the movies. The arc light, you. the arc light is closed. That seems fishy to me for some reason. You're gonna you're gonna announce that you're going bankrupt two weeks before you can open. I don't know. They're 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 fishing for some kind of law. Isn't it owned by Scientologists? Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I, I just something fishy about the ArcLight thing to me. You went all this time to announce right before it opens that you're not opening. Come on, everybody. Well, uh, they know they're gonna get helped out. I think a lot of theaters haven't gotten their CARES Act money yet. It's been tied up. I think a lot of movie theaters, a lot of off-Broadway theaters were supposed to get bailed out, and they haven't gotten the money yet. So, ah, okay. Well, All right, so I, recommend – go ahead. I'm sorry. I love going to the Arclight, so hopefully it opens back And the Cinerama Dome? It's the best theater in the world. Over. You know – yeah, it's over. I mean, you got it. They have to open it back up. That seems crazy to me. Someone's going to buy it. Someone has to buy it. Will people buy it? Okay, so what we've been talking about all day on the show is as we get vaccinated, I would assume you've gotten at least one shot? I'm done. Johnson & Johnson, baby. Got on St. Patrick's Day. Ah, okay. Get shots from St. Patrick's Day. That's a good idea because the alcohol cuts down on blood clots. <laughs> It thins exactly. the blood. Yeah, alcohol thins <laughs> the blood, so it counteracts the Johnson & Johnson clot, clotting factor. I get my uh, second shot uh, on Sunday, just in time for the booster, I believe. Great. <laughs> Looking forward to that. The question I've been asking everybody is, as we re-enter a post-pandemic society, and that's up for grabs. I mean, that could be three years from now. Yeah. We're not going to recognize anything. And a lot of new habits are going to die hard, like not going to the movies, not going to comedy clubs, not going to restaurants. Don't you think a lot of people have discovered that they don't need to run around and it's almost yes. less frantic to just be a hermit. Absolutely. I feel like I was invited to a party that had a bunch of, uh, you know, the fun people there. I mean, it was a, you know, it, they asked if I was vaccinated first, of course, but, and I, I, I was going to go and I bailed at the last second. I got, I started getting nervous about seeing people in person. It's like, and, and I feel like my anxiety's up more and I feel like I, I, other people, their anxiety's up more. It's like, you know, it's, if they were about to start being normal again or normal-ish, it's almost like that anxiety you get like at the end of summer vacation and you got to go back to school. You know, it's like, what are we going to do when you got to go in a writer's room again? Like, yeah. it's going to be weird. People are just uh, boxes on a screen for me. So if I go to a party, how do I mute them? You know, <laughs> I, I, I've been spoiled. But Zoom is better than reality, isn't it? I mean, for some people, sure. But, you know, personally, I miss the movie theater. I've already been back twice by the way. Yeah. I've, I've saw Godzilla vs. King Kong and uh, and I saw the uh, that movie Tenet, 
which was god awful. But um, I, I, I've been back twice. I'm, I'm going to be playing How America Killed My Mother in the theater finally on uh, May 6th in uh, North Hollywood at the Lamley. And uh, I, I'm, I'm excited. I, I'm ready, you know. I understand that, you know, if, I, I like to get out. I like to be a part of a society. I so get, we're uh, told we're social animals, but technology rewires the brain for some. I, I think technology has made me even less social bull than I was before. What about sex? Do you think Mark Breslin was on earlier and Aaron Berg was on earlier and they were saying everybody's just going to start effing? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the people who want to, I think everyone else is just going to keep staying at home. And watching porn. Yeah, half of us been sitting on our nuts for a full year, cooking them, you know, waiting for uh, to see uh, if, if, our, if our shit still works. Right. By the way, I went to uh, I went and got checked out. I went and uh, did went to a place called Kind Body to see if uh, my sperm works to see if uh, maybe about having kids. And that was weird. I went and uh, voluntarily jerked off at the mall, and so that was uh, again. Me. Yes, again. It must be nice time. not to be arrested this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all you got to do is pay. $200. So you weren't standing in front of Abercrombie and Fitch and looking at the, the mannequin. Yeah, no, you actually get to bring the mannequin into the little room. Well, so how does that work? So you go to a, a, a sperm doctor. I went to a place called Kind Body, and uh, it was first uh, my, my beautiful fiancé went, and uh, they went to go see Now, when did you... Uh, Announced that you were getting married. Uh, two years ago, I got engaged, and, I, and I'm not going to actually get married until the, uh, July 2022. When, and, uh, but that's you know, I mean, just to make sure. You know what? Know. I, I got a booking. I would love to get you. Fine. I booked that in 2022. I'll see. I'm. I'll see. I'm registered at a Blockbuster Video. <laughs> Okay, so you're you're thinking now? Did you tell your fiance that you were the world's largest baby? Does she know? I tried to explain to her that it probably isn't in her best interest for us to have a baby, because not only am I the am I the biggest baby ever born in Florida at 14 pounds, 13 and a half ounces. Uh, both of my parents are twins. Really? With the opposite sex. Both of my parents are uh, fraternal twins, I think that's what it's called. But you didn't have, my, but you're not a twin, right? No, I, um, I, I ate it. That's a big baby. That's a big baby. No, we, we should mention that Ed Larson was the largest baby ever born in Florida. Which says a lot, right? I'm like fifth now. I'm like fifth now. But uh, so how do babies? I know that cats and dogs are hitting record obesity, and and toddlers are, you know, fatter than, or I guess fat is not a good term, but uh, but how does how how are babies eating more in the womb? How is that possible? I mean, I'm almost 40 years old, so this is you know old news. But um, what makes? I mean, how does a baby get too fat? I mean, a, a fetus. You, you were a, a, an obese fetus. 
Well, my mom was craving meat the entire time she was pregnant with me. She doesn't even like meat. And uh, so, like, and, and then other things that she was, like, fruit, uh, melons, and uh, cantaloupes, which I hate. She was very sick every time she tried to eat it and, got, and threw up. So I was just a meat baby. And so, you know, I was at my first cheeseburger before I was one. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big boy. I'm a big <laughs> wow. Wow. So you, you so you go to this place. What's it called again? Kind Body. Kind Body. And, and they want to look at your sperm. Yeah. They bring me into a room, and there's like a, a pee pad down on a chair, you know, like somewhere you would put something you would put on the ground for like a small dog to go to the bathroom on. Like they have one on a chair, and it's just like a chair facing a giant television that's hooked up to Pornhub. And you, uh, they give you a rope, a remote control, which I find oh, said a rope. And now I said a rope. Now you're talking, Mike. You put it around your neck, yes. <laughs> so they want a lot of sperm. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> also, they kind of messed up. They're like, they sent me an email two days before I go in. They're like, don't jerk off or have sex for five days. I mean, luckily I hadn't. But like, you sent it two days before I went in. Right. Regardless. So I'm in there, and then they, I'm, I'm searching. For I, I want to sneak it. Hold the thought. I want to get this in before Dr. Fraud shows up, because it's really embarrassing. to. <laughs> but my, so my son, five years ago, calls me. You remember Don Herrera's joke? My, my doctor wanted a sperm sample, a stool sample, and a blood sample. So I gave him my underwear. Remember that joke? No. But I okay, so I opened for Don Rickles, Don Riggles, uh, Don Herrera when, when my son was like 12, and he heard uh -huh. that joke, right? Ten years later, ten years, you never know what goes into a kid's head. Ten years later, he calls me and he goes, Dad, I, I fixed Don Herrera's joke. My doctor wanted a blood sample, a sperm sample, and a stool sample. So I gave him my, so I gave him a stool sample. <laughs> my doctor wanted a, a blood sample, a sperm sample, and a stool sample. So I gave him a stool sample. My son oh. did a variation of it. I said that I am so so. I, I just want to tell that before Doctor Fraud showed us. Don Marrera's show was so big for me when I was a kid. I know. Uh, the one that was on Showtime, like the late night dirty stand-up show. Yeah. What was that called again? I don't know. I was on it a couple of times. You were? I bet I watched you. Yeah. I bet I did because yeah. I watched every Did you see Otto and George on it? I don't remember anyone's oh name. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So, what you were, so, you, so you go in to... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just didn't want to. No, no, I go into the jerk-off room, yeah. and I uh, I sit, and they, all the porn that they have as like, an option to watch is just... Well, what, now, wait a second. Nobody can use their imagination? I mean, I was I should have, because it was very upsetting, the stuff that... Well, is it, are men now incapable of thinking? I mean, I'd much rather look at porn to masturbate, Dave. I know this is getting very... Oh, hi, Dr. Fred. <laughs> I got my. I, I told Dr. Fraud is here, and uh, I, I, there was a, a story I wanted to tell before you showed up because I didn't want you to hear it. 
But now the the Dr. Fraud would would laugh, and and, and we'll talk about this with Dr. Fraud. So you have he, he was uh, donating sperm. Well, not getting it uh, analyzed, analyzed to see if it uh, if they swim or not. And uh, and so I don't think your mic's on, Doctor. And um, and I, I was so they. The one thing that bothered me the most was that they had a remote control that was just, you know, everyone uses the remote control while they're masturbating, and we all share it, and it's very gross to me. Uh, but when I, I was done, I finished. It's like a hotel. It's basically like a hotel remote basically. control. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hello. Hi. Yes. <laughs> right. And so the the part the worst part was they I put the they, the little seaming cup in the the they had a little door I remember like basically reminded me of when I used to have to do pee tests when I was on probation forever ago and they had a little door that connected it between the two rooms but when I got up I, I put my hand on the remote by accident and it switched to normal television. And it was just like a little boy doing homework. And I was like, oh, no. And, like, the first time I ever, like, fought to put porn back on the television. Because I was scared somebody would think. Oh, he's watching. And have you gotten the results on the, their swimming? The, can yeah, they swim? Uh, they can swim. Like, they're not as smart as they should be. But I also um, I smoke a good amount of marijuana. So if I just uh, lower that intake and take some supplements, I'm good to go. I'm sorry, Dr. Fry. That'll, that, you know, that'll quicken them if, if you uh, take it easy on the pot? Yes, that's what they're saying. If I, they're stoned? Not right now, but most nights, yes. Well, I, you know, I didn't yes. get stoned. Okay. <laughs> well, but yeah, and they want me to start taking the Coco 10. Cocal 10 is P-O-Q-10. Right. So, so hopefully uh, that'll okay. get everything working for me in the next year or two. And we'll see. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll have a kid. Maybe I'll have another giant baby try to bring You could also kid. get a rescue kid. Actually, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I want. I told I'd rather have a 10-year-old in 10 years than, you know, than, than uh, a baby now. Yeah, yeah. Well... We'll see. Hopefully, you'll be back next week. Ed Larson, can I come back on Monday? Yeah, we love you. At the same time? Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I'll I'll remind you. Yeah, and we'll plug "How America Killed My Mother," a special screening of Ed Larson's movie. How do people follow you on Twitter, and how do people listen to your podcasts? Uh, um, you can find me on Twitter at EddieTunes underscore. That's E-D-D-I-E-T-U-N-E-S underscore on Twitter and just EddieTunes on Instagram. And uh, you can listen to my podcast, The Brighter Side, uh, exclusive to Spotify, part of the last podcast network. And I also have another podcast called Thick Skin with Jeff Ross. I'm the co-host of that. We have to get available. him. We have to get him back on the show. I'm in his basement right now. Is he there? This is live from Jeff Ross's house. Um, I don't know if he's. I think he went to go play softball. Uh, I've been, but uh, we were just doing a stereo before this. Okay. But, uh, but yes, he's got to come on. He's going to be live at the movie theater with me on the sixth. Fantastic. Sixth, which will be a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thank you, buddy. I'll see you next week. Bye, Dave. Bye. Bye, Doctor Fraud. Bye. I'll talk to you soon. What a nice man, Doctor Harry Fraud host of Capitalism Hits Home 
and it's not just in your head. We were just talking. Welcome, Dr. Fred. We were just talking about he was donating, not donating sperm. I don't think people <laughs> donate sperm. I think they get their... I guess you could. I, I, they do. What yeah. particularly if there is a sperm bank. Right. And I, I, a lot of women have written in asking me to donate sperm because they, they want a uh, idiot for a kid. So <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't want a kid who's uh, going to cost a lot of money with, you know, wanting to go to college. So they want... Uh, he was talking about it's automatically assumed that when a man donates sperm, he's going to look at porn. Automatically, but they put okay, him in a room. Come, he'll he'll look at porn, and that will make him ejaculate into the cup. Yes. What what is? I'm going to feign uh, outrage and pretend uh, I don't understand this. What has happened that men can't uh, pleasure themselves using their own imagination? Seems to me, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, people looked at pictures or imagined. However, one of the things, porn excites the same sights as any sexual activity does. And if you spend a lot of time watching porn, and a lot of men are addicted to porn, and then there's a lot of men who watch porn, and increasingly even co-eds at college, Males can't ejaculate unless there's porn on in the background because they depend on the porn to excite the pleasure centers in their brain. And it replaces a human being with a product that's bought. And, and what? And do you approve of that? No, I don't. The, the porn industry, which is the only place, the sex industries are the only place where women without a college education actually earn more than men. But I don't approve of it because it replaces human beings with a store-bought product. And the porn industry now makes more than all the sports industries together. It's not regulated. It's full of racial stereotypes. And it pervades often this view that women like to be assaulted, which then young men who in our Puritan culture don't have reasonable sexuality education think that's sex. And that's what they do, and young women do too. I so, are women looking at it? Does a woman does a woman look at porn primarily to figure out what men want, or do women look at porn? Depends on the porn. There's gay women's porn. They look at that because they find it sexually exciting. There's hetero porn, which is different, and in which women are usually routinely humiliated. Um, and then there's the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which I would assume, in all seriousness, most, I, I, this is probably unfair. I suspect, given a choice between porn and watching the Shahs of Sunset or the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, most women would prefer to watch the Real Housewives. But because no, because, look, sexuality is one of those things where... Unfortunately, in our culture, unlike in socialist cultures and all over Scandinavia and France, sex is considered something men want and women withhold. And it's a scarce commodity for men. And therefore, they look for it in a way that women don't. If you're an attractive woman, there's all sorts of men 
who will want to have sex with you just because they're jerking off in you, whatever, and you're a girl, they figured it out, so that, wow, they're right on it. Right. Whereas women have a lot of choices and don't feel that the only need we're allowed to really show in life as women is sex. Men are groomed that that's the only way that they can be manly and needy at the same time. Women are allowed to have all sorts of emotional needs. You are a founding mother of women's liberation. I believe it's second wave feminism. Second wave feminism, that's right. What did, what did they say about pornography back then? It wasn't, could they have imagined what's going on now? They couldn't have. They couldn't have imagined the enormous profitability of the porn industry or the hold of evangelism, which I don't think it's an accident that the state with the greatest porn watching is Utah, where the Mormons are horrendously sexually repressed. That it goes along, repression goes along with guilty biological sex without relationship, without friendship, without intimacy. And that's a huge problem. You know, there's someone called Kristen Godsey. Who we had her on the show. Yeah, who's great. I mean, her, in the studies of women's sexual satisfaction in the GDR, the East Germany before the Soviet collapse, and West Germany, East Germans had better sex. They did because East German women are financially independent. So women don't hook up with men to be supported. And if women have children, which is true in Scandinavia as well, they don't have to have a man around to finance their ability to take care of children. The society intervenes to raise the next generation that it will benefit from. And so that there's much better sex because women are sexual equals. They make their own money. They can support their children. So they sleep with the man they're attracted to. Whoever they want. With, on the, according to their desire, not according to who has the money to support them. Now, are women turned on, in America, are women turned on by, uh, in, in a capitalist society, I would assume that women can be turned on by a man with money. Yes, that can be very attractive. I remember a quote from Maria Callas, the famous opera singer who went out with Aristotle Onassis. And somebody said to her, oh, how could you go out with him? He's so short. He's so short. He's ugly and he's so short. And she said he looks a lot taller when he stands on his money. <laughs> but that was a genuine physical desire flowing yes. from his he wealth. He was attracted to his money, which was commingled with his presence. And is that on a primal level, does that mean power that... that Women or men. Yeah, power, possibility, potential treats. I mean, I, I would feel the opposite. I remember in college, David Rockefeller asked me out. I met him on a plane, and I thought, are you kidding? The right. David Rockefeller? Yeah. you could. He's dead now, the one that asked me out. Chase, Chase and yeah. Trilateral and Commission. We had gotten into a very good discussion about a film on Africa that I had seen, and he was very interested in Africa, augmenting his shrunken head collection to let shrunken head and put it part of their collection. (laughs) (laughs) 
In any case, I thought to myself, I'd never go out with you. You could kill me, and nobody would ever even look into it because you're David Rockefeller. Forget it. That much power is terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of people... You said that to him? No, I just thought it and said, oh, that wouldn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. That, uh, you know, I think a lot of women, particularly women who have not been brought up with the things they need in life, are very attracted to the idea of being spoiled and rich. I'm just thinking if Dr. Harriet thought, I'm just thinking for a second, had you been a mole, you know, and married David Rockefeller, you could have brought down capitalism single-handedly. You could have done it. He's just one oligarch and wouldn't let his wife have more power. In that crowd, the wives get to go to the country club and things like that and hire the governess and hire the house cleaner. You know, they were like a feudal manager of the estate. When you fight with your husband, when you fight with your husband, do you ever say, I could have married David Rockefeller? Because I would never have been, first of all, it was the first date. Second of all, he knows that I would find that terrifying to go out with somebody who could make me disappear and nobody would question it. Right. They have, and I think that much money corrupts people. Right. So, so it, it frightened me, but, you know, I'm a radical. I know somebody who used to work for the family as a, a personal assistant. For, I'm not going to, uh, because I don't want to disappear and I don't want this person to disappear. Uh, was busy working for their charitable fa- charitable foundation, which is not that charitable when it comes to its own employees. No. Oh, you bet. The nonprofits are often that way. Yeah. But I do, you know, I think that as long as women are not paid properly and the state does not come in and help support children, women will be hooking up with men for their money. Right. Let's talk about women murdering their families. Yeah, well, that's a big deal. It's not only women. Men murder their kids even more frequently. But you expect them to do that. That's what men do. You do. You expect them to do that. Also, men are usually stronger, so when they smash their kids around, they're more likely likely to die. But you can't read the daily news for a week without finding out that somebody murdered their kids. And, you know, the household, the family's the most dangerous place for kids. 85% of the homicides of children are by their family or relatives at home. That's the way it goes. And yet, we have this idea that just because somebody's knocked up, they could take care of someone else who's utterly vulnerable. And so, two kids a day are killed by their parents and... Everyone says that only half of the homicides by your family are reported as such. You know, he fell down the stairs, he got in the car, accident, whatever, you know, whatever. Or they go to their pediatrician who counts on them to pay and who covers it up. But there, there's an enormous, no, there's enormous violence. And violence against children and child murder goes down after age one because the kids can run away better, and goes way down at age six because the kids are out of the house at school, unless there's COVID. 
where there's a big spikes in child abuse. But the idea that just because somebody is pregnant, they would know how to take care of a vulnerable life that needs 24-hour care is a bizarre supposition whose purpose is to shift the burden of support of the next generation from the state who will benefit onto the parents. And America is particularly backward in that respect. I think it's because other countries like France and Scandinavia didn't count on immigrants to replenish their population and so they had to do something to keep their kids alive. And they have all sorts of child programs, after school programs, child allowances, special housing that's subsidized for single moms, all sorts of things. Single parents, there is a small fraction of single fathers. But the United States didn't have those things. And we utterly neglect our children who are utterly vulnerable and trapped. And so that there's a huge problem. The general estimate is that 5,000 kids are killed every year. And then they talk about the children who are abducted. You know, on the milk cartons, you see strangers' faces. Yeah, 350 kids a year are abducted, and that's very dangerous. But over, what is it, 1,021 are abducted by parents in custody wars and sometimes don't see the other parent again, you know. Yeah. So the, the threat is not the dangerous stranger. That's very rare, even though it's played up by the media. The threat is your parents. And that children are doomed to the finances of their parents, to the limits of their parents, to the tempers of their parents, is a terrible curse. You know, I was watching a nature documentary <laughs> on the PBS, and they... Uh, was about gorillas, a certain type of gorilla that lives in the trees. And when a, a baby gorilla is born in the trees, these are tree-dwelling gorillas, the baby, the, everybody in the community just grabs the baby and they pick it up and they almost play keep away with it. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it, when you look at it, from afar, it looked like, what are you doing to the mother? What are you doing to the baby? They, they all want to hold the baby. And what that does is, I'm getting the chills because it was so beautiful. It's the community raising the, the baby gorilla. They, they're, they're smelling her or him, and the baby is smelling at all the members of the community so that if anything happens to the mother, the, the baby will be acclimated to the other members of the community. You know, it, starting in kindergarten, people should bring in babies. And for every year, kids in school should be forced to, to feel the terror of holding a newborn baby. That, 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 yeah. You know, it is the most terrifying. Because and once, it's so vulnerable. It's the most fra it's the most fragile. I mean, I had really, you know, I had hope when I held my first kid. It, I was. It, when you hold anybody's newborn baby, it's a miracle that so many survive. When you look at, at what, they're actually kind of hardy. 
I'm talking about the fact that that that, that in the United States, it's a, given who we are as a people, right. it's it a miracle true. that so right. many babies survive American parents. And the most dangerous conditions for a baby are being born to a poor single mother who has no supports. If you have a child in France, which has a, you know, it's a very mixed population, but you have someone come to the house twice a week to do whatever helps. You have somebody coming to the house, another person to help you get back in shape. And if you've abused the child, you have a social worker for five years, checking on the family, helping the family. We are way behind with that. And also the idea of family it's a reactionary idea. They grew up after the feudal family, with, where the feudal father, the father and his sons owned the property with the oldest son coming next and so on. When that fell apart because the feudal estates wanted bigger tracts of land for sheep and stuff and threw the serfs off, and they went into the cities and they started, well, that's how capitalism started. And after the French Revolution, which was a revolution against feudalism and the Catholic Church, which was an enormous feudal landlord, as well as creating the ideological justification for feudalism that God intended for the Lord of the Manor to be over them and that they would get their reward in heaven and so on. When that collapsed, and this has been true, in, this was true in a variation in England, but in France, what happened was the remaining aristocracy that wasn't killed, the remaining church, which still had a huge money, and the new capitalists got together and said, we're in trouble. A big demand of the French Revolution was state support for children. And that was a demand of the children who were involved in fighting as well. That's sort of covered in Les Miserables. They talk about that a little bit. And Jean Valjean, the novel that it was based on. But in any case, they thought, wait a minute, they're asking state support. Who's, who's they going to tax for this? Nobody else has any money. It's going to be us. Right. So they figured out how to create something that would shift the responsibility. That the man would be the feudal lord of his household and get feudal status in his independent household. The wife would get protection from maternity. It was when the feudal family broke down, they didn't have that. The children were chattel that could be rented out and used as necessary. And really, that's not a great arrangement for kids, the isolated nuclear family. They enforced that in the great poverty after the revolution by giving no one a job unless it was a man with a dependent wife and kids. And they also poured on the ideology. This was God's intelligent design. And so that's where we got this family form, which is really outmoded and was always a bad idea. And it should be abandoned, but it's become as American as apple pie, even though Americans are treated families terribly. We kill our kids much more often than other people do, and they have fewer protections anywhere. It wasn't until 1967 that the legislation came in that said, you, you know, 
You can't bring your dead kid in and pretend they fell down the stairs. You know, it was the, the battered child syndrome was exposed in 1962, and the legislation was in place by 67, so that at least you couldn't kill your kids. But it's very, you know, the family has to be first supported wildly with after-school care, summer care, infant care, baby care, toddler care, and parents have to be given help. Because just because you have a kid doesn't mean you know anything. Right. I also think starting in high school, starting at 13, you should be talking about sexual education and what happens if you have sex and produce a child. And every student should have to walk around several times a week holding a 10-pound bag of flour that's open and not being able to spill it because that's their baby. Right. And learning about child development. Because otherwise, people don't know. And, and it all, doesn't end until the kids are 25. That's so right. The, the lobes aren't done until they're 25. That's right. Particularly in, in males, girls are a little earlier. But it's, you know, it's not fair to children. It's not fair to parents. And really, other countries that have more civilized, socialistic ideas don't do that to their children. Right, right. Sex education is relational education, starting in high school. And before that, it's very careful, starting in kindergarten, that you don't pollinate the flower unless the bee carries the pollen from this flower to that flower. And then they talk about sex in relationships. They, in the GDR, you know, and in these socialist countries, they talked about their orgasms in sex ed class. Because there was an acceptance that this is something people want, this is a kind of pleasure that you have with other people to whom you are mutually responsible. But within our puritanical culture, that's not allowed. And France is at least nominally a Catholic country, and yet every other block there's a condom machine right out there on the sidewalk. Right. And they have a sense of humor about it. When we were there some years ago, the Archbishop of Paris um, died in the arms of a prostitute. He was he was naked. They claimed he was trying to save her soul at the time, but very few were convinced, to say the least. And you can't see a French movie where there's a priest in it without his being an asshole, totally. Right. And it does. So they have a sense of humor about it. But we are a very backward country, and family is touted as an almost religious thing, and yet we're given, it's given no support. Those are the systems of control, because we are not a religious country. Fewer and fewer Americans go to church, temple, or a mosque. More and more Americans are atheists, but they keep pushing on us this idea that we're a religious nation. We're not a religious nation. We're not. They want us to be because, look, Althusser, the great Marxian philosopher, who the Marxist, the French Communist Party was a little pissed at because he, he wanted to open up the conversation and not make mechanical Marxism. But his idea was that the family, the authoritarian family, the authoritarian 
church, and authoritarian education are ideological state apparatuses that teach you the lines of dominance and submission from the inside out. So the cops and the soldiers are hardly necessary because you humiliate and demean yourself. You don't stand up for yourself. And look, you grow up in a dictatorship. There are these giant people who decide everything and don't discuss it with you. They move you from place to place. They often, you know, degenerate into weird behavior, and you are a prisoner. At least if you're in a country like France or Scandinavia with excellent child care, they notice the bruises. They look into it. All your pediatric care is on site at the daycare, which is universal. So you have a chance. Right. We're a backward country. Yes. And our families are, you know, are just a tribute to that backwardness. Well, we're out of time. We have like three minutes left, and then we have to go to Elizabeth City, North Carolina, to talk about the Andrew Brown shooting. Every 10 years... The Constitution demands that every 10 years we do a, cens a census and uh, the results are coming in. I think they're questionable because of the pandemic. Yes. One of the things they've discovered is that America's population grew at the slowest rate since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Fewer immigrants and a declining birth rate. And declining fertility. And declining well, fertility. People don't want to bring kids into this world. They don't even know if they'll have a planet for those kids. And also, they don't have the money. We are not like other countries that have subsidized or free child care and medical care. If you go into the hospital and have an, a birth with insurance, you can get away with paying about $3,000. If you don't have it, it's 35000 Who can do that? Right, right. So, one of the things we've been talking about on the show today, or I've been talking about, is not being able to recognize this country when we come out of the pandemic. Would you say, not since the 60s, have we seen such a transformative period in American history, world history, starting with the Me Too movement? Would you say 2017... I would. I think finally the efforts of Occupy, which were quashed by Obama with a coordinated smashing down in every city they, they appeared in, um, I think class is now being realized. People are understanding that the oppression of black people, the oppression of women, and the oppression of the mass of Americans is both the class, race, and gender oppression. And people are starting to realize they've had it. I mean, 60 million Americans were unemployed. And the top echelons, the billionaires of America, gained a trillion dollars. The billionaires of the whole world gained nine trillion. Well, people lost everything. And so it's recurring to people we're not going to get ahead just because we work hard. The people who are getting ahead are corrupt. We've got to do what they've realized in all these other countries. Right. Join together in a socialist or social movement to change this country and change together. 
the idea, which was true until about the mid-70s, that if you were white and in a family headed by a male, every generation could do better than the last. That isn't true anymore. I think this is similar. Yeah, I think this is similar to the 60s because young people have every right to hate the older generation again. And as a, as a boomer, I, I can feel and taste the contempt from young people. In the 60s, you know, the, the, the greatest generation suddenly found themselves despised by their children. Why do they hate us? Look at Vietnam. Look at the environment. Look at the way you... relationships that cause riots is so terrible. And a lot of uh, the greatest generation listened to the kids and changed. Right. There was a lot of change, and then there was a, you know, a right. reaction against it. And now with the evident immiseration of the mass of American people, they're looking for solutions at both ends, fascistic solutions like Trump's and socialistic solutions. Yep. And people are joining together. They're not isolated in the same way as they were after the 60s. My advice to the boomers, we have to wrap it up. My advice to the boomers is remember how much you hated your parents' generation. The hatred now being felt for you is exponentially higher Get with, the, get with the program because there's a, there's a reason and we don't matter anymore. We have to wrap it up. We're, we're going to go to Elizabeth. City. Okay, well, it's good to talk oh, to you. This was the best. This was the best. Yeah. And I hogged you and I apologize to my listeners. Dr. Oh, Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. How, how do people contact you? You are a, a psychologist. You're a hypnotherapist. Yeah, you cure people. Mental health counselor. They could go to hfraud at gmail dot com and contact me. They could go to my website harrietfraud dot com. Those are both ways to do that. Right. We we, we love you. We do. Thanks. Everybody and my sister and mother love you. <laughs> I, I get reports on the show. They That's they love nice. you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How great would have that been if Dr. Harriet Fraud uh, infiltrated the Rockefeller family and met David Rockefeller and married him? <laughs> All right. We're going to do Bye. a little – thank you, Dr. Fraud. We're going to do a little prestidigitation and bring in Myla and Andrea. I know Andrea was here. And, and David, Andrea is here, but she is, um, I, I had to send her my Zoom link because she was out in the street and she didn't have access to her computer. I see, okay. So, can you switch her name? She's the Black Square, I'm the Prosecute Killer Cops. Let me, uh, bear with me here. That's Andrea. I, I don't Hello? see her. Hello? You can hear her. I hear her. Can we see you, Andrea, or... or my host has disabled the video, it says? That's right. Yeah, let me... Let me My speech is being stifled right now. I know. Okay. That is not a good thing. <laughs> uh, why can't I... 
do this. Uh, let me just say something regarding uh, logistics here. It's a miracle that we run as smoothly as we do. Let me find you in the participants. There we go. Right. Okay. Ask to start video. Ask to start video. And while you're starting up your video, there we go. Let me introduce. Yes, let me introduce Myla and then you. We're going to Elizabeth City, North Carolina, where Andrea Ravensky, host of Above It All, is covering the recent shooting of Andrew Brown Jr., the 42-year-old African-American male shot in the back by police last week, one day after police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted by a jury for the murder of George Floyd. Andrew Brown Jr., father of seven, was shot in the back by police as they attempted to serve him a warrant, and he drove away. Lawyers for Andrew Brown's family say no weapons were found in his car or his home. Footage of the body cam video was scheduled to be shown to the family early today as the city braced for protests. And uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and the surrounding Pasquantank County declared a state of emergency in anticipation of tonight's protests. Elizabeth City has a population of roughly 18,000, half of whom are African-American. And a little earlier tonight, we are told that the family has seen the body cam video and described it as nothing less than an execution. Uh, Elizabeth City is in a state of emergency. Myla, introduce our guest, please. Oh, Andrea, thank you so much for uh, being here. I see you're, you're in the street right now. Yeah, Andrea is um, a wonderful uh, YouTube uh, streamer. She streams every morning. It's her channel, above it all, I put the um, a link to her channel in the chat, and I'll put another one in. And um, it just so happens that the um, execution of um, Andrew Brown Jr. happened uh, right down the block from Andrea last Wednesday morning. She heard the shots, and uh, I, I'd love to hand it over to Andrea to kind of fill us in and update us because a lot of the news that we're hearing is not entirely accurate, And uh, but Andrea's got the scoop. All right. Am I? Can you hear me? Can you see me? Like, yes. Can you see all the action going on? Yeah. Do you want to give us a landscape, or uh, is that possible? A landscape view? Well, I mean, I can get closer. No, no. What I'm saying is, can you flip? Can you flip it? You sound great. Can you just flip it horizontally? I uh, I don't know. There you go. That looks much better. So where are you in Elizabeth City, North Carolina? Uh, so right now I'm downtown. Um, we've got a very large crowd here, probably the largest that we've seen, like, the whole time since Wednesday, since it started. Um, and so as you can tell, we're about to, I guess, march through downtown. Um, I presume that they're going back to the sheriff's office. Um, earlier today... The sheriff let the family in to watch a 20-second version. Of That's the it? Redacted. Yes, only 20 seconds. Uh, they blurred the cops' faces and tried to hide their identities as well. 
Um, and so they came out and basically said, enough, like, it's not enough. Uh, we demand a public releasing of the full tape. Um, and uh, as you can see, they're, they're, they're going. Um, I've been uh, marching with the crowd for the most part, other than right now. Uh, I'm off to the side so that I can hear y'all. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the energy right now is very, very high. Um, probably the highest it's been since this whole thing started. Um, there was also going to be some counter-protesters, like some pro-Trump, law and order kind of people. Um, but I don't know if they showed up and are in the crowd or if they showed up and chickened out because no one else showed up. But we haven't seen any sort of... Uh, I haven't, at least. Maybe maybe they're back at the sheriff's office. Uh, I mean, I'm going to try to tail them while I'm on the phone with y'all so that it's not uh, too noisy. Um, right. Does anyone have questions? Yeah. In terms of police violence towards the protesters, how have the police handled the, the rage? You guys have been on the street since the shooting. Yes. Um, I've been here. I've been covering every single moment of these protests since it started, um, including, like, you know, going down to the scene of the crime, because uh, I live uh, down the block or so. Uh, the police, the, the, the interesting thing right, about, right now about the police situation is that you have the sheriff's office, which is part of the county, and then you've got the local Elizabeth City police. And the local Elizabeth City police were leapfrogged in this, like, serving of this warrant by the county, like, sheriff. Um, and so basically the Elizabeth uh, City Police is kind of ostensibly on our side because basically they just want to point all the blame at the sheriff's office uh, because they kind of just didn't inform Elizabeth City Police that they were going to come in, execute this raid, and then, of course, it turned into such a disaster. So the Elizabeth City Police have been very supportive of our protests. Our protests have also been very peaceful. There's been no violence reported in any capacity. Um, and so, uh, as of right now, the police response is pretty good. Um, there haven't really been any negative altercations or anything. Uh, there's been, like, you know, a couple areas where, like, a cop car gets too close to the crowd, and, you know, the crowd, like, kind of, like, goes up to the cop car to, like, you know, try to stop it in place and that kind of a thing. Um, but outside of that, it's been pretty peaceful no, for the most part. No vandalism? Uh, no, none that I can see, none that I have heard of. And so you're saying this is a jurisdictional thing, that uh, Andrew Brown Jr. was killed by the county sheriff trying to uh, issue a warrant for his arrest for drug dealing, I believe, cocaine and methamphetamines. This was a county case, not Elizabeth City police case, and they felt – so you're getting – you're saying that the, the, the local police are angry – because their jurisdiction was violated. Yeah, basically, like, you know, they didn't get informed, you know, like maybe they wouldn't have necessarily wanted to do the raid themselves, but, like, they at least, you know, would have liked a heads up. Hey, we're going to be sending several cop cars, including 10 officers, into your town, which is, again, this is a small town. Um, we've been walking, like, up and down the entire town the whole time. So it's not like this is a major city. This is a really small town, and, like, everyone from this town knows the town really well, right? So we've just been kind of occupying and shutting down all the major roads. Um, but, yeah. So you're a city of 18,000, half of whom are African-American. Is your yeah. mayor African-American? I what? so, yeah. I'm sorry? She's, uh, she's been she – I – yeah, go on. Sorry, I, I'm just – I'll jump in here because I'll, I'll just oh, – Oh, sure. Thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
the mayor is African American, and um, she would rather not uh, be associated with this murder. Yeah, she's been basically she's been kind of like trying to toe the line, like the center line here, uh, saying like, of course the protests are, are like righteous, but like she's also been doing the. As you can tell, the the, the the car horns are really loud out now. Uh, but she's also been doing, like, the please be peaceful, don't riot, don't loot kind of thing, you know, as if anyone's doing that or as if anyone has the idea to do that. What is the general relationship between the police and the African-American community? I, I'm sorry, give me a sec. Say that again? What is the, the relationship between the, the 9,000 African-Americans in Elizabeth City and the police, not the sheriffs who did the shooting, but the police. Is it a good relationship? Uh, for the most part, uh, the chief of police is, you know, a relatively pretty good guy. Um, he's very friendly with most of the people here. What, what, um, is he African-American? Yes. He is African-American, uh, right? Yeah, so, like, you know, they're, you know, for the most part, they're pretty good. I mean, they still arrest people for weed and stuff, which is, like, as far as I'm concerned, you know, no bueno, but... You know, as far as cops go, especially cops in the South, uh, they're definitely better than some other cops that I've dealt with, for sure. Is there a history? You know, in Minnesota, Minneapolis, there was a history. Merrick Garland announced that he's looking into the history of the use of force in, in Minneapolis, a storied history of violence against African Americans in Minneapolis. Is there a history of police abuse in Elizabeth well, City, North Carolina? I've only lived here for about two years, so I can't give you, like, a, a further timeline than that. Uh, but since I've been here, I've noticed the police, you know, I haven't seen anything that I wouldn't have seen anywhere else, I suppose, you know, like, so relatively abusive because they're police, but nothing more or less than I would say I've noticed anywhere else. Uh, but, again, I've only lived here a couple of years. So what happened last week to Andrew Brown, father of seven, shot in the back as the sheriffs tried mm -hmm. to serve a, a, an arrest warrant? They were there to arrest him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now originally uh, they claimed this is one of the things that the sheriff's department has been doing. They've been switching the details. So initially... They claimed it was a search warrant, and they were there to search his house and his car for drugs. Ooh, evil and spooky drugs, right? And they uh, didn't find any, did they? And I, they I think, yes. They, they did in his house and his car. I'm sorry, Miley. Uh, excuse me for one second, Andrew. Miley, they did not find, I know they didn't find guns in no, the I, car, on them, or in the house, but what about cocaine and the methamphetamines? Oh, nothing they, whatsoever. They did not find any. They did not find anything at all. They didn't even have, they, they didn't even plant any on them. I'm being <laughs> serious. I mean, not, uh, no, I mean like for real. Maybe that's why they're not uh, uh, releasing the full video because who knows what kind of things that they were doing at the scene? Because you know, especially in small towns like this, you know, police and sheriff's departments are often really corrupt, and it's because it's a small town. You know, there's not that many people to usually show up and protest like this. You know what I mean? So they typically get away with this kind of stuff. So I imagine their kind of go-to protocol in a situation like this is not legal, and therefore that's why they're trying as hard as they can not to release this full video. 
You know, I, how many officers were uh, there to um, assassinate uh, Mr. Brown? It's my understanding that there were at least seven uh, sheriff's deputies, and it would seem to me that all seven would be wearing body cams, and there would be a whole lot of video evidence that has yet to come to light. Uh, um, yeah. So the the family of uh, Andrew Brown is requesting all of the body camera footage from all of the police that were present. To my understanding, the number I did hear of uh, those present was seven. Uh, it could have been more, but I did hear seven. Um, and they're all on administrative leave. Are they required by law to turn their body cams on? Um, I believe that we recently actually did fund body cameras in the city for the sheriff's department specifically. I want to say last year, um, because fun fact, um, when George Floyd was murdered on international television, we had a demonstration in Elizabeth City where our local sheriff, um, Tommy Wooten is the guy's name, did come to that demonstration and said, you know, and I quote, like, nothing like this will ever happen in Elizabeth City. Here's my cell phone number, you know, in case you ever need anything. And then as soon as, of course, Something like that did happen in Elizabeth City. People were calling him, and he wouldn't answer the phone unless there was CNN or, like, you know, some other local, like, you know, city council member or something is like he that. Is he African-American? Uh, no, Tommy Wooten is a white guy. Do we know the, the racial makeup of the county deputies who killed Andrew Brown, Jr.? I don't know if any details about them have been released. Uh, to my understanding, they're... There's, like, one officer that was involved in the situation who was black that they keep, like, trying to point to to say it's not a racist thing. But as far as the other people that were there to serve the warrant, I am not sure. And what is the explanation that the county sheriff's office gives? Did they they first say that Andrew Brown Jr. was armed and they were acting in self-defense? Um, no, their excuse was he was in a car and driving away from them is their excuse. And what is, is the protocol a, what is the protocol for a quote unquote suspect who resists arrest? Are you supposed to fire well, at him? I don't think so. I mean I, I'm not a cop. The last time I checked the protocol does not include murdering them. Uh and I when I say I want to specify that this was in a school zone. Like, there was an elementary school down the street from where they fired off this gun. And some of the fire from the gun actually went into uh, some of uh, Mr. Brown's neighbor's house. Like, it went through the wall into the house and then through the other wall out of the house. So will Um, we discover, because I read earlier this morning, that he was shot in the back. And the car, the back windshield was shattered. So is it... Are the police going to say they were shooting at the car, not at Andrew Brown Jr.? Is that the, how they're going to defend themselves? Seems right now that they're, the sheriff's department's play is to make things last as long as possible to see if people lose interest. That's what it seems like right now. Um, they've basically, you know, they had this thing where they had like a three-day window to release the footage. They waited until like, as I predicted on my show, they waited until like 11.59, you know, at the last day in order to make their decision. Um, and their decision was to release a 20-second snippet of one of the feeds, right? So it seems to me that they're just playing this out as long as possible uh, to try to make people give up or lose interest. That's what they're, they're, they're hoping that there's another outrageous killing of an unarmed black man that will seal our attention. And there will be, because a 1,000 Americans are killed every year by 